Is that on? Mm hmm Okay, come down in 10 minutes and check. Thank you. Okay, this is I just got a text message. Are you excited to read that? Listen to this. Yeah. Okay. Breaking. Dems just announced their plan to impeach President Trump. We're five really? times matching the first 100 de- de- uh, donors who defend Trump here. So do you think I should donate to that cause? Yeah. Wait. Did Nancy Pelosi? Oh yeah. Nancy Pelosi announces official impeachment inquiry into Trump. There we go. Yeah. Whatever. Who cares? Who cares? But uh, have I told you the reason why I get those weird right-wing uh, propaganda messages occasionally? No. So, flashback to uh, the balmy year of 2012, okay? Mm-hmm. Election night, 2012. I'm there. Uh, it was really late. Uh, I was in my dorm room, and I was by myself, <laughs> as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. And as the election results are, were coming in, I thought it would be really amusing if I purchased a bumper sticker that said women for Mitt Romney on the verge of Mitt Romney's defeat. <laughs> and I did this. And ever since then, I've, I've periodically gotten calls for the Republican Party in Texas just still. So how much did you pay for the bumper sticker? I believe it was $15. And to what surface did you affix the bumper sticker? Um, I just had it in my room for a long time, and then I don't, I don't know what happened to it. But it was worth it? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, but anyway, uh, this is Project A Plus Season 2. My name is Hunter. My name is Hugh. So, uh, what films are we going to cover on today's um, season opening spectacular? Uh, we will be covering the James Gray space epic mm-hmm. Ad Astra. Which, if you know your Latin, translates to... Suck my dick. To the stars. <laughs> oh, so close. We'll see if it's going to be a Ad Astra or a Daddy Astra. I thought you were just going to say, we'll see if it's going to be an Ad Astra or a Bad Astra. <laughs> no, no. That makes sense, because it's a quality of judgment. We already know, it's already a Daddy Astra. Are we going to call the film Daddy? That's the question. Uh, I see what you mean. I just thought you were referring to the fact that the film has daddy issues of its own. I would say Dad Astra, if that were the case. Mm. So we're going to continue our inquiry into the Iranian New Wave by talking about two uh, more films by acclaimed auteur, Jafir Panahi, um, which we'll loosely call the um, films that start, started French film. Yeah, <laughs> Jafar Panahi, um, and we're gonna start. Just go with Jafar Panahi. Jafar, whatever. Jafar Panahi. I don't know. To be fair, I haven't actually heard the correct pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. So you don't know. Uh, so shut up. Um, and um, 
we're going to discuss his the first two of his films to be officially banned in Iran. And they have the names of The Circle uh, from the year of 20... 2000. 12? 2017. The Circle's 2000, I think, isn't it? No, it says right here it's 2017. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and then also his next film, which is likewise banned, Crimson Gold, um, which is released uh, 2003, but I don't know, really know if that means that's when it was completed or when it was released in abroad. I don't know. So what's the next uh, segment that we do? Is it fucking... Meals on wheels, wheels on meals, wheels on meals. Meals on wheels, on No, no, meals on reels, reels on meals, reels on meals. Reels on meals. Reels on meals. The movie's called Wheels on Meals, so... Yeah, it's Reels on Meals. Okay, great. It's Reels on Meals. Great. Reels on Meals, on Reels on Meals, on Reels. Reels on Meals, on Reels on Meals, on Reels. That's what the theme song says that we just heard, and it was great. Yeah. And we're going to have a round of applause for that real quick. Yeah. Woo! A standing ovation. I can't believe it. <laughs> oh, the whole crowd's joining in. <laughs> Alright. Hang on, wait. Your hands are still clapping. What's that noise? Oh God. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, so, uh, what have you eaten today, Hugh? Have you have you eaten the same thing you've had to eat every time we've done this podcast so far, or this segment? Yeah. So I knew it was season two, and that maybe I should mix it up a little bit because I have been reporting on the same meals every single episode since we incepted this segment. If that's the correct use of English. <laughs> Into our listeners' brains. I guess I could have just said since the inception of this segment. Um, but anyway, this morning I thought about mixing it up, mm-hmm. but I didn't. And I just ate nice. Marmite on toast. So I, I guess it's slightly different because last time I ate Vegemite, but I ran out of Vegemite. Wow. And I bought some Marmite. Wow, disgusting. Uh, what do you have to drink? Some, some, a, cu- a cup of drip coffee? cup of drip coffee that i'm drinking right now how about your meals of the day uh i think i had some meals today and they were these ready mm-hmm. i ate some pasta and some salad for lunch and then i got mcdonald's for dinner and that's it you had mcdonald's for dinner i did what was your order uh i got uh, ten chicken nuggets and some fries, and that's it. Ten chicken nuggets and some fries was your dinner? Yeah. What's happened, man? Uh, I've let myself go. Where's the pharaoh? Where's the kale? <laughs> I didn't want to make dinner. Wow. I'll go back to, I'm, I'm going to make pharaoh tomorrow, so blow me. Alright, moving on to our first film. <laughs> our feature presentation. Get down! Great. Uh, so on to our feature feature, which this week happens to be Ab Abstra. <laughs> is that right? Is Ab in Latin? What does Ab mean in Latin? Because that could uh, 
be funny, right? Ab in Latin. Sorry. This is a pointless discursion. It means from. There you go. So it was correct Latin. So you actually mean from the stars. Yep. Let's name it. That's the sequel. Yeah, when uh, when Tommy Lee Jones comes back. As an alien monster. <laughs> yep. He was looking for new life in out of space, and he found it in himself. Oh, boy. Okay, so uh, what is Ad Abstra about you? Did you say Ab... Ad, ad abstra? <laughs> no. <laughs> Let me check if abstra yeah. <laughs> is in Latin. I already looked it up and it does mean something in Latin. It means abstract. Abstra in Latin. Oh, sorry. Google corrected me. Apparently it means a withdrawn. So to the withdrawn. Right? That's the fitting title for this film. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm a fucking genius. Let, let's, let's, let's make it clear to the listeners that you did study Latin. I did. I took, I took AP Latin, Hugh. Wow. What's the highest level there is? What, what movie are you talking about? Ad Astra. And what does that mean? To the stars. Stars like Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones. Liv Tyler. Donald Sutherland. Uh, what's her name? The other, other woman. Ruth Negger. <laughs> yes. Uh, is there any other actors? That's all the people listed in the starring section of Wikipedia. That's enough for me. It's enough stars. That's that's it's it's there amazing are that other there are actors in this film. No, shut up. There, it's amazing that there were stars in the in the. Wait, Jamie sky. Kennedy was in it. Really? That's yes. <laughs> As a guy called Peter Bellow, I did not recognize him in this at all. Neither <laughs> <laughs> did I. <laughs> Wait, is what? he? So he must be one of the crew members. I'm guessing. What does Jamie Kennedy look like now? I would recognize Jamie Kennedy as an <laughs> avid fan of the Jamie Kennedy experiment growing up. Was he, was he the guy who had, like, the man bun? No, that's not Jamie Kennedy. That guy was way too young. Um, let's see. And handsome. Right, maybe, he's, maybe his role got cut out. It's listed on Wikipedia. So? <laughs> it's just a who the fuck is Peter? I don't know. Peter Bellow. Wait, maybe Jamie Kennedy... Ad. I already tried to Astra. Google that. We'll get to the anything. film, I swear. <laughs> no, we will never go into The guy who gets killed by the baboon, spoiler. Wow. Um, you don't really see his face at any point. Do you? Um, oh, no, I guess you do see them without yeah, the Yeah, you do see him. Yeah, at the beginning. Oh, yeah, I forgot that John Ortiz is in this. But it, maybe, maybe it's him. Maybe it's the guy who gets killed by the baboon. Because you don't see that much of him. Or maybe it's the other guy, the like the loser one. No, no, that wasn't. Oh, maybe it was. Maybe that's why he looked familiar. But I thought he was someone else. Yeah, I, I don't but know. But that could have been him, I guess. Well, let's have to see the movie again and see if we can identify him. Oh my god, he definitely looked familiar to me, and I didn't know why. Like I couldn't quite place him. Is it? Is but it I wouldn't have thought Jamie Jamie Kennedy. But I guess it could have been. Wait, uh, let me look know. at all the other actors. We're going to work this out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to watch the trailer. See if, it, see if I, he crops up. Okay, so... Chip? <laughs> Chip? God, this is terrible. John I hate Finn? you. Oh, no. No, no, no. because one of them was a captain, and it says captain. Well, I mean, the other guy. So, Yeah, I guess I, I guess could still be the guy we're thinking of then, because he, he becomes captain. Yeah. Um... Greg Burkington. Does he look like? Oh no, Greg Burke is the guy with the man bun, so we can rule him out. 
I mean, we, we weren't suspicious. Why, why, I don't know why you're doing this. This isn't helping, is it? Unless you're looking up. Unless you're looking at exact photographic so I can memory. Because I'll know what, what roles they play, and that, that will leave the role that, that Jamie Kennedy fills. So it's not John Finn. It's not John Ortiz. He's not like the general scene. No. Okay, there's a guy called Donny Kishawaz. Kishawaz. I hardly even know Shawaz. Uh, I do recognize his face from the film. Now, much of the trailer has um, the sequences in the in the spaceship, unfortunately. Ah. Uh, Maybe we should talk about the film. No, no. All right, we'll keep going. Who is Jamie Kennedy <laughs> in Ad Astra? Just going to type that, see what happens. Oh, maybe I should just type his character name. <laughs> Go for Peter it. Peter Bello, Ad Astra. Yeah, nothing in the in one of the trailers, but... Oh, here we go. Kennedy will play Peter Bello, a sergeant who has been posted on a Mars... Come on. Come on. A sergeant who has been posted on a Mars base for an extended time. It'd be really funny if his role just got cut out and we're wasting our time. A sergeant who has been posted on a Mars base for an extended time. So, was he on the Mars base then? So, not in the spacecraft. Sergeant. <laughs> I remember, like, there was. there's not many characters on the Mars base. It was the no. woman who helped him, the guy with the man bun. Yeah. And uh, the people were, like, recording the uh, transmission, and that was about it. Maybe he's one of those guys. But that was a woman, the guy there's with the man There's another guy. Bun, and then there was another but guy. I, I, for, I, there's a sequence of that in, uh, um, in the trailer, and it did not look like him, so. Okay, yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think any of them were him. But we're getting closer. I'm trying to do a podcast. It's fucking hard, okay? I need help. I got a lot going on, all right? You guys don't know my life. Maybe I'll do a podcast of all the things I do in my life, okay? Okay, now I'm on IMDb. See, Jamie Kennedy's not on IMDb, so I don't think he was in the film. I, or his part got cut out. Maybe it did. Is he really not on the IMDb page? He's not on the IMDb page. Well, that you, you, that's a revelation that you heard here first. Uh, I have a new movie coming out. Um, it drops tomorrow. It is called Ad Astra. Um, it's not my movie. I was. Um, it's Brad Pitt's movie. I just had a little part in it. Um, but I haven't been talking about it. And the reason is, is because I got cut. Snip. I think. I think. I don't know. Like, I was all excited for the movie. And then I, um, I looked on IMDb Pro and they, like, dropped a trailer. And the next day, my name was off the fucking credits. And I'm like, fuck, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck? Oh, get fucked, Jamie Kennedy. Well, that's that mystery solved. 
Let me. Do, I want to verify it myself, so I'm just going to the Ad Astra page. Where's the J.B. Kennedy tapes, James Gray? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he like improvised too much or something. <laughs> he just kept on doing the J.B. Kennedy experiment. Wasn't that like a prank show? It's exactly what it was. So he just kept on pranking people, and and James Gray was like, "No." See, like people remember like like that punked show with Ashton Kutcher, but the the OG show was the Jamie Kennedy experiment. That was where it was at. You know, uh, I haven't watched any of them. Oh man, this sounds great. The, his next film, or one of the films that's coming up in Jamie Kennedy's life, is a, a, a dramatization of Roe vs. Wade, starring who do you think it's starring? John Voight. So great. Nice. Have you seen Malibu's Most Wanted? Uh, yes, it's amazing. <laughs> a spinoff starring a fictional character, or about a fictional character in the Jamie Kennedy experiment. Sounds great. Yep. Okay, so uh, anyway, Ad Astra. What's Ad Astra about? <laughs> Is it a movie where Brad Pitt goes into space? Yes, that's it. That's the long and the short of it, yeah. Um, so Space Pit. As opposed to Earth Pit, uh, as seen in um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So what is um, now? I, I'm I'm going on the I'm on the Wikipedia page of the guy who directed Malibu's Most Wanted. So you know, <laughs> and I'm looking at his directorial debut, a 1993 film called Calendar Girl, which starred uh, Jason Priestley, uh, Gabriel Olds, and the reason I'm bringing this up, uh, Jerry O'Connell. These are my boys, Jamie Kennedy, Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> when you finally write that comedy drama, those will be the people you uh, give comeback roles to. That's right. Right, so what is Ad Astra? Uh, Ad Astra is a movie by James Gray about uh, an astronaut called Brad Pitt. Yes, playing himself. And uh, he's a very calm, cool, withdrawn emotionally distant dude one might say depressed <laughs> one might say uh suffering from the effects of uh a somewhat abusive childhood apparently um and speaking of which he gets a top secret mission from his uh elders better superiors <laughs> from his elders from the <laughs> people above him in the chain of command the generals yes. of the united states space force um, and they reveal to him that they believe. So we're not we're not doing a great we're not doing a great job of setting up. So movie opens. He's on some. Sort hey, of I was space just bridge. I was just in the flow no, of it, and no, he no. just. Space, he's, on on a, he's on a space thing, and there's a weird surge of power. He gets thrown off, almost dies. Doesn't die, but almost dies. Finds out from these generals that the reason that this power surge happened uh, was because of a release of antimatter related to a mysterious project that resulted in the disappearance of um, <laughs> Brad Pitt's father, Plato Tony Jones, uh, many years ago, called the Lima Project, which involved the search for extraterrestrial life. That's right, uh, yes. Uh, anyway, so Brad Pitt plays Major Roy McBride. Yes. And uh, his daddy is played by Tommy Lee Jones, and his yes. name is H. Clifford McBride. Yes continue um so uh the generals uh would like to stop this because if enough of this antimatter stuff which is the fuel of the ship gets released 
all life in the solar system will be erased. Um, the only problem is that uh, H. Clifford McBride has turned off the communication array uh, that is part of the Lemur project. And so it is impossible to get a message to him. Um, and so they don't, don't really know what's going on there. If, if he is responsible for the release of antimatter or some other calamitous, calamit, yeah, calamitous, how do you say that word? Calamitous? Calamitous. Calamitous. Action has occurred. Calamitous. Calamitous. Action has occurred. Calamitous. Calamitous. <laughs> Calamitous. All right. Calamitous. Way of the future. Um, <laughs> action has occurred, and I don't know. They're they're they don't want they don't want everyone to die. So they're like, we'll try to. I can't did you establish the fact that Brad Pitt thought his father was, for all intents and purposes, dead? Right. Yes. Okay. So it's a revelation to him that his father might be still alive. Yes, yes. And he's affronted somewhat by the suggestion that his father may be engaged in an act of foul play. Yeah. <laughs> the foulest of plays, indeed, life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, the mission that they send him on is to go to Mars by way of the moon. Mm-hmm in order to um, uh, try to get a message to him under the assumption that uh, H. Clifford McBride would be more willing to receive a message from his son, um, which in, after, they, after he receives this message via laser beam, he can track him and then destroy the spaceship or something. Yeah. Uh, that's basically the long and short of it. Oh, I guess you should mention that this play takes place in a future where um, there is commercial space flights, the moon has been colonized... Um, by uh, it seems American interests uh, as evinced by the Applebee's on the moon mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that everyone speaks with an American accent um, and so he has to overcome some stuff and get to Mars maybe discover the truth behind the Lima project and what his father has been up to along the way maybe make some friends <laughs> Make and then dispose of <laughs> yeah. some friends. Well, I mean, you know, he, uh, I mean, he's only directly responsible for the deaths of a couple of people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, that's, that's the setup, you, um, uh, did we already talk about Lost City of Z in this podcast? I can't remember. No, because this would be the episode where I mentioned in the bonus features that I actually watched it. And it's Lost City of Z, thank you very much. No, I don't think so. As the characters uh, in the Gray, film themselves say. James Gray is a American director. Well, he directed them to say Lost City of Zed. And, and, and the film is an American film. <laughs> so, it's the Lost City of Z. Duh. It's also based on an American book. About so, fuck a you. British dude who, said, who named it the Lost City of Zed. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I would never say the Lost City of Zed. The Lost City of Z. Charlie Hunnam says Zed. No. Charlie Hunnam is God. <laughs> uh, uh, here we go. Although Z is pronounced Z in the film's US-made promotional videos. Done. Easy. Even by the British actors. Finish that thought. <laughs> it's pronounced Zed by the characters of the film. But, Hugh, that does not matter. <laughs> because we're not talking about how they refer to it in the film itself. We're talking about it outside the context of the film. 
uh, only referring to the object of the film, not the not the contents of the film itself. So there you go. Lost it easy. So anyway, um, what do you think of that, Astra? <laughs> <laughs> have you have you seen James Gray's other films? I guess I could start with that. No, so Lost City of Z. So the Lost City of Z. Z. <laughs> no. You. Yes, I won. I'm gonna do that take again so I can cut out that mistake. <laughs> the Lost City of Z is the is my first experience with James Gray. I have not seen his more intimate dramas featuring the likes of Joaquin Phoenix and even and Mark Mark Wahlberg twice. Yep. And even yep. Mark Wahlberg and Joaquin Phoenix twice. Yep. Yep. Um, and I've heard those films that are exemplary. I have not seen them either. I've only seen As You Have, Ad Astra, and Velocity of Z. Which is probably a weird representation of his catalogue. It is. Given that... Um, so, so they have re- represented something of a break from his earlier... Yeah, because he himself expressed dramas. surprise that he was approached to develop a film, develop the film that became Velocity of Z. Hmm. Um, because that's not really the type of film that he has made in the past so yeah he took up the challenge and it seems to have steered his career in a different direction if if these two films are any evidence now james Gray is also notable for i think all of his films besides one i was looking at this this up earlier have lost money which i think is interesting uh and presumably he continues to make movies by the fact that um uh, I, I, I situate because Brad Pitt seems to like him because yes. Brad Pitt produ- produced Velocity of Z. He also produced this film. He was originally supposed to star in yeah. Velocity of Z. And why did he not? Well, what film came in conflict with it? I can't remember. Me either. Okay, apparently it was World War Z. So he made a, the right choice there. <laughs> Financially, he did. Yes. And did you know there's going to be that uh, David Fincher was supposed to direct a sequel to World War Z, and then it got cancelled because it's too expensive. Yes, I do remember that. Weird. That's strange. And according to this Wikipedia page, the biggest reason why it was canceled is because of the Chinese um, prohibition on films featuring zombies. So. Nice. <laughs> anyway, so what did you think about Ad Astra? Well, unfortunately, because of our preamble, my opinion of Ad Astra is forever colored by the fact that Jamie Kennedy could have been in it, but he wasn't. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe you'll buy the Blu-ray and just watch the, the deleted footage over and over again. <laughs> uh, okay, so the first thing I want to say about this film is I, I don't think it gets off to a particularly great start. Mm. So in the grand tradition of science fiction cinema, we get a redundant and rather poorly written opening title to provide some context yeah. to the story that we're going to see. And what does it tell us? It's the near future. <laughs> There's space. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. Um, it serves basically no function, and it just opens no. the film with this deafening clunk, in my opinion. But I will concede that it does it does incorporate the Latin translation um, of the title, but uh, nonetheless, or the I, English tra- translation we'll, of the Latin we'll in the title. We'll discuss this, but I think there is a specific reason why it opened it with this uh, particular bit of uh, title foolery. But we'll talk about that in a bit. But the the heavy-handed exposition that that opening title encapsulates um, also continues via some other sci-fi staples, Mm. especially when we're dealing with some sort of new future world, 
where we get a snatch of a newscast of like the mm. CNN broadcast that, that Brad Pitt's character is watching. God, I don't even I don't even remember this. <laughs> and then it further continues by this bafflingly awful internal narration mm. <laughs> provided by Major Roy McBride. Mm. For someone who is supposedly so closed off from the world, he can't fucking keep from telling us every mediocre thought that passes through his head. And I was hoping that would recede after a while, mm -hmm. like after it had just established the, the world and his character and stuff, and then it would sort of move forward with uh, mm. some visual-based stuff, but goddamn it does not. Mm. And I'm sorry to say this, but I will. Uh -huh. It follows us through the film like a fart trapped in a spacesuit. Mm. And I really think the film would be substantially better if they jettisoned a hundred percent of the narration, like every single word. Uh. I don't think the character of uh, Roy McBride would be that much more interesting if they did that, mm. but at least there would be room for us to imagine a, a more compelling interior life, maybe. Mm. Um, and I, I really don't know what happened. Um, either the narration was focus grouped in by like a panicking studio or something. I don't, I don't think or, that's the case. Or Gray just doesn't trust his own images. I don't know, mm. just that that really bothered me throughout the film. I won't go into too much details at this point, and we'll return to mm. the narration. But, um, I yeah, I wasn't a big fan of this film, although there are moments mm. in it that I thought were well-staged mm. and a couple of ideas that showed potential, but overall I thought this was a bit of a snooze. Mm. What did you think? Wow. So you're going to give it... Um Two two pillows. <laughs> That's your rating. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, Hugh, I'm sorry to say that um, I really like this film a lot. Is it is it is it a perfect film? No. Yes. But yes, it is a perfect film. <laughs> and Hugh, this may have something to do with the fact that it was in a raw emotional state when I watched it, <laughs> having exited mere hours before for my first ever therapy session. Wow. But I agree that there are some parts of this film that are fairly clunky. Um, but I honestly liked the narration, the, the inner monologuing. Um, and it struck me as sort of it, it, the, the match to the sort of, um, taciturn like military figure that Pitt plays I thought I thought it actually worked really well mm. and I also think it worked as sort of a um it, not exactly an alienation device but it 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 kind of keeps you from being too involved it it, it actually it, it ironically sort of pushes you away from the character to some degree and in that way I thought it sort of matched the the narrative trajectory of his character as well um and I do think there are some moments where it's kind of like, it just seems redundant, but, uh, I, I like this film a lot <laughs> and I found it, especially the ending to be incredibly profoundly moving. So there you go. There we go. So just, just to, to pick up your thread about the narration. Uh -huh. um, there are definitely moments where, where it is redundant. I, I do agree with that. Um, and I wrote some of them down. <laughs> I, I, I do agree with the, the one negative thing that you said, yes. 
Um, my my fav- one of my favorite bits was um, so when he's traveling to Mars, he he joins this this spacecraft, mm-hmm. and uh, we see him kind of blankly observe the the upbeat camaraderie of his new crewmates, mm. and a moment later in the narration we get they seem very at ease. I wonder what that's like. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, I, I will laugh at this with you when it's removed from the context of the film, but inside of it, I, I had no problems at all with the narration. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I respect that. And there, there's been a part, and there's a part where my, that my friend and I have been laughing at since we saw the film, which is after there's a, a spoiler award, after he, he duel, has a duel to the death with a, a raucous baboon. There's a part where he's sitting in his, in his, uh, the command console of a, of a spaceship. He's just like, I, I, the creature had rage. I could identify with it. I thought it was good, good, good stuff. Profoundly beautiful. Um, and I wanted to quote that too. And we will return to that. <laughs> um, but Hugh, 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 it is funny that he criticized the narration of this film because... The film that this most reminded me of was not some of the comparisons I've seen online, e.g. to 2001 A Space Odyssey or other space-faring films. The film it reminded me most of was a little film called Blade Runner. To me, I was like, I was wondering if this was a Blade Runner scenario in which the studio mandated the narration. I've read, I've read, I've read stuff that suggests not, but I could be wrong. Mm. But I feel like the narration and other people pointed this really felt sort of like a Malick Ian moment. And maybe that's why I responded to it more than you are, because I have a, a higher tolerance <laughs> towards that sort of stuff. Than... I, I saw some reviews that said the same thing, but the di- there's, there's actually quite a difference between mm. the way Malick uses his narration yeah. and the way it's used here, because there's such a disconnect between what the characters are saying in, in Malick films. It's almost like this remote philosophical poetry. I mean, there, there, there are definitely parts of that. The, in this film tale. Sort of, but most of the time he's saying very prosaic things about what's actually happening and explaining his mental state at various times. Uh, another, another reason why I liked it is it almost seemed like a, a exit report of it, of the film, you know? Like, this is like the condensed version that you get in the in the military, like, debriefing that he does after they edit the film. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but in a, in a Malik film, it's like a textual element on top. Right. It's not so much functioning as ex- exposition at all, really, or anything. No. Um, anyway, to, to proceed on my tract about the narration, mm. uh, there's one point where he finds out something, I think maybe when he finds out that his father probably did do something wrong, he says something along the lines of, did the mission break him or was he already broken? Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> After it's clearly established that this is going to be a sins of the father story, right? He actually says it in the narration. He's going, I guess we're condemned to suffer I mean, Hugh, the sins of our fathers. I'm like, come on, man. Give me some credit. I get it. I think, I think, I think you're revealing yourself to be uh, uh, a elitist who can only respond to subtlety. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're just afraid to admit the... the um, you know, wild swings of emotion this film takes affected you, and you're, you're lashing out. It's okay. 
<laughs> it's okay. But I generally do think it's a shame because I, I do think there are good things in this movie. Like all of it. Like I said, the, there are well-staged set pieces. Yeah, there are some very... Except for uh, the opening one, I was kind of like, whatever, to be honest. Yeah, I didn't particularly like the opening one. It just reminded me of Star Trek. Well, it reminded me of not First as effective. Man, but not as effective. Or even Gravity, actually. I mean, I did, that, I never, I've never seen Gravity. But um, there, I do think the way that it's filmed is interesting, where it's often, like, times, like, locked onto Pitt's uh, POV, you know? Hmm. I thought, I, thought, I thought there was a good grounding or attempt to ground sort of the... Um, character inside of the special effect, you know? Yeah, you could definitely tell that that was the aim of it. Yeah, I thought it did a pretty good job of doing that. Um, but I do think that the other... All, all the other major set pieces, I think, are really well executed, especially the sort of... the the fight with the pirates on the moon. <laughs> but that's that's one of the reasons I like this film, is that it, it meshes all these sort of weird... Um, or it's not afraid to uh, put, like, genre elements into or like sort of like really pulpy stuff you know uh into what is otherwise sort of this like serious like contemplative sci-fi film you know yeah like i do i do like those elements of the films i think like we can agree that moon buggy pirates and killer space baboons are objectively good things to have in a science fiction picture right great stuff (laughs) even if they serve no actual purpose in the story i i do agree with you there that i like the fact that they're integrated i don't think it detracts from what gray is trying to do with the story and i think i've read some reviews that that sort of uh or at least one review in particular which was mark commode's opinion on this film which was sort of similar to mine but he objected to the fact that the action sequences like the moon buggy pirate stuff and the killer space baboon felt like they came from a different film, but I actually mm. thought they were among the better sections of this film. I mean, but they're all to emphasize that Brad Pitt in this film is, is a Uber Chad. Uh, yes. He's a Chad who becomes a beta. That's the, it's a sort of reverse um, <laughs> once upon a time in Hollywood, like trajectory, you know, <laughs> Um, but I, I actually quite like the idea of this film, which is essentially mm. Heart of Darkness in Space. Yeah. With the Sins of the Father narrative integrated into that. Uh, yes, I agree. That's not a bad idea, to be honest. That's, that could <laughs> and work. And it was really well executed, so... <laughs> but yeah, I just found the writing just really awful. Um, like, the narration is the worst offender, but it's not the only offender. Uh, um, I, I think it's worth talking about the, the role played by his ex-wife yeah. in this film. Um, and his ex-wife is played by Liv Tyler, fleetingly. <laughs> yes, an almost non-speaking role. I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's just a, a particularly obnoxious example of that trend in a lot of these man-on-a-mission movies mm. of reducing a woman to a wife and a wife to a burden. Mm. And superficially, it's not obviously condoning that behavior or or saying that, but in the narrative, that's her function. Her, essentially, she's just providing emotional shading to the hero. Sure, but I, I, you know what, Hugh? I'm, I'm, I'm sick of this PC culture. <laughs> well, so we talked about this in the context of First Man, which is mm. a very similar movie in a lot of ways. It is. And it has a similar arc for its central character. But I, I like this movie more than I like First Man. I think I like First Man more. Hmm. Um, but this, I think this film makes First Man look almost com- impeccable by comparison. 
<laughs> just when, especially when you look at the the um, dynamic between him and his wife, I think at least we got a little bit more of that in First Man. I think, I think, I mean, I, I do agree that it's sort of, I don't know, you know, it's not. I mean, she's not like a complicated character, but it's not. She's not a character. No, but I, I don't really see it the same way. Where she's not like a uh, a suffering wife character in the same way that that. Uh, Neil Armstrong's wife is in in First Man, and that she like leaves him in the beginning of the film. You know, I feel like it's, there's a more definite break between um, Roy McBride in this and and uh, and in First Man. Well, I I would be remiss, I would be remiss if I did not quote directly from dialogue actually spoken by the aforementioned ex-wife in this movie, which is. You're so distant. Even when you're here with me, it's like you're somewhere else. Yeah. I was like, yeah, thanks for that. But he's already told us like 20 different ways in the narration throughout this <laughs> time. It's okay, film. Hugh. It's okay. Uh, but yeah, can we return to the, the scene that you mentioned, which was hilarious? <laughs> We're following this baboon attack. Um, he, he does his psychologically he does his like mandated psychological profile mm. test thingy which reminded me of blade runner as well actually yeah um and he says that <laughs> that he identifies with the anger ex- exhibited by the killer baboon because that anger was in him too you know mm. he, he knows he knows what that's like but he doesn't show us we don't get any anger from him throughout the entire film at any point well then he talks about how he's com- compartmentalizing it yeah, right. So, <laughs> but I want to. I want to see his killer baboon anger. <laughs> well, buddy, do I have the movie for you? <laughs> what did you think of Mr. Pitt's performance? I thought he was really good. I will say it's refreshing to hear him use his actual speaking voice. Yeah. Because um, I think he's a lot weaker when he's trying to put on any other voice. To be honest. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think he's not bad. I don't think it's a great performance, but I, I think it's not bad. I think it's bordering on a great performance but I, i'm gonna see this film again this weekend i think so i'll, I'll be able to report more on that later mm. but i thought he was really um i don't know i thought he played like sort of this re- this repressed sort of slowly coming back to life person pretty well so it's the right sort of role for brad pitt not necessarily emotionally yeah but he's got a boy scout face he's got an astronaut face so definitely but i honestly i think i think that the way ryan gosling played a very similar character Mm. was more effective partly because there was no internal narration but i think they're both good i think ryan i think ryan gosling's whole whole shtick is that he often plays you know contemplative repressed characters that's yeah that's his that's his wheelhouse i I think it's interesting to see Pitt play this sort of character because he almost never does you know that's right he almost always plays gregarious and sort of um I don't know, charming characters. I, th- I think there's some great parts where he just seems vacant and sort of, I don't know, just damaged, you know? Hmm. Um, like, my favorite scene in the entire film, one that uh, I sort of started crying at because I thought it was so depressing, was the bit where he actually is recording the message to his father, right? Hmm. And whatever, the, the you know, he does it a couple of times giving the script that he, he sort of uh, has been prepared for him. Um, and then he sort of starts ad-libbing and uses his actual memories and stuff. 
And I mean, this is another part of, of the film that reminded me of Blade Runner, is that the, the memories that he produces are just these sort of, like, uh, I don't know, they seem, like, implanted, like, generic, you know? Like, I, I used to watch old movies with you, and there's just, like, this, like, almost monotone cadence that he gives. And I thought that, I thought that sequence was just so effective in, in, in demonstrating how, like, I don't know, empty this person has been because of, like, you know, the structures in his life and his father and... Um, I don't know, traditional masculinity in general. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. But I just really wish I, I I got that just from like a sequence such as that and just seeing his physical performance rather than having it explained to me all the time. I guess I just don't, I guess I just don't mind that explanatory mode that much, yo. Well, because it, it sort of leads you to engage with the character more. I, I mean, I don't quite agree with you that the narration distances you further from the character than than you would get if it wasn't there. Well, I was I, I was saying I mean it made it may have it may not have functioned that way for you, but no, but I mean like if you removed it, I don't think you'd feel closer to the character. Mm. But it makes you sort of think about the character more and engage with the idea of what is going on with that character more than you're permitted to do. See, I, I actually kind of disagree where um, I, I often find that that narration sort of it makes you sort of have to, you know, you're thinking about what the, the words that the characters are saying in that moment versus the actions that they're committing on screen, right? Hmm. Oftentimes, because work is like sort of a counterpunctual like element of a film. Oftentimes, like Malachi's so like that, right? Yeah, but I think that's when it's that's when it's actually written better. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think it's I think it's written fine. <laughs> and you're just more pretentious than than me, a man of the people. And I thought the music was was that generic kind of cello driven. Yeah, the music did, did not. Um, I, I was like a negative element. It just did not leave much of an impression on me at all. It was one of those scores which kind of does what it sets out to do, basically. But it feels like it could have been at this point computer generated from any number of other scores. Bring Vangelis in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but uh, let's talk about some other elements of this one. I like. I do enjoy the sort of like casual uh, world building that it does, except for like the uh, expository sequences, right? Hmm. Where like it never really is like, okay, this is the world now. The United States controls X things. It really is just based on like the images that you see, right? For the most part. Well, that's part. why I would have liked there not to be an opening title at all. But maybe you should speak to what you were going to mention about the opening title. Well, I mean, uh, it's just that it, it is just like the opening titles of Blade Runner, right? Yeah, yeah. Where like it it has this like uh, text. The one in Blade Runner is better, um, and then it's just like blah blah blah. The year twenty whatever. This is what's happening, and then it fades out except for a couple of words. You know, so that's what I was. That's that's I, that's I saw it as a reference. I I don't think it like is. It's pretty like silly, and it's close enough to our present situation that we can grasp it really easily without any help. So I, I would have liked if it just went straight in, and had the courage of its convictions. <laughs> I like the, I like the critiques of capitalism that are that are in this film too. If my daddy saw this, he would tear it down. <laughs> no, because obviously his dad is responsible for a lot of it, right? Yeah, that no, makes no sense. <laughs> no, but I'm saying that's that's because you know Pitt's Pitt's been sort of like brainwashed into into accepting his father as this hero. You know, and there's mm. that sequence where he's like he's like telling um, I can't remember who it is. Donald, oh, Donald Sutherland. Sutherland. He's like, my dad was a hero. You you old fuck. <laughs> go have go die. Um, and sort of not like, actually what happens, just to be clear. <laughs> and then he punches him in the face, right? 
Um, anyway, so you like you liked the way the world building. Yeah, I did. And I, I thought the design was really good too. Well, I mean, it's a mix. Some of it is, some of it I do like, but I wasn't a fan of the deliberately retro, like two thousand one esque controls because that made no sense to me. I'm sure that would not happen at this point yeah. in the future. But I mean, I don't. You know what? I, I mean, I'm not really talking about like believability. Like, I don't really care about that in science fiction. That that annoyed me. I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about, to be honest. Well, a lot of the times when they're in on that spaceship, uh, the actual controls that they use to control the spaceship are like antiquated, like airplane controls or the sort the sort of thing that was imagined I mean, but, in 2001. But what what do what do people use to control? <laughs> rocket ships now not that do you know this as a fact yes i'm confident in saying i do <laughs> okay <laughs> i have first-hand experience I, I just, yeah, yeah that's what i thought it's like it is it is worth saying here this is kind of not relevant too no. much or it's not worth getting into but there probably is an extent to which if you were designing a rocket ship you would want a lot of manual control so it wasn't reliant on yeah. a a complete software-based solution and they even and they even uh demonstrate why you would want that in the film <laughs> yeah um but anyway um it that felt that felt off to me it didn't feel like what you would design for a spacecraft in the near future <laughs> because because you have intimate knowledge because i have intimate knowledge as i said <laughs> as a commander in australia's australia's uh, space control and they also have translucent tablets like ipads yeah. right these will absolutely exist i mean Things like that already exist. Yeah. But they won't, like, read, like, faint panes of glass when there is something on the screen. So, like, the background is still very visible oh, through whatever. whatever you're trying to watch. I mean, that's not going to happen. It looks good on a cinema screen, I guess, yeah. as an effect. Because, because it's an that's effect. not a practical you, way to, like, cares? watch it's a video on a tablet. It's an aesthetic. Why do, you want, why do you care so much about realism and the believability of the role of world view? Is that all that cinema can do? Can nothing be yes. figurative? That's right. There'll be no expressionism at all. Now let's let's dive into some of the uh, logical gaps in this. <laughs> okay, okay. Now plot hole corner. <laughs> no so, plot hole. First of all, first of all. Uh, God. Okay, so let's get that. Let's get the cinema said counter on you. Are you ready? <laughs> this is what you're yep. doing, you piece of shit. <laughs> um, I do want to ask this because I think I think I can explain it. So uh, it's not necessarily a plot hole, but there. Um, so, okay, there's a couple of things wrong with the mission in the first place in conception. Mm. So, first of all, obviously, normally you wouldn't use somebody who has any connection with the subject for this type of sensitive mission no. in the circumstances. But they want to exploit the fact that he does have that personal connection as a way of um, yeah, getting to the Yeah, I think that's right? adequately explained in that, like, you that know, makes sense, right? communications from the normal army ships you yeah, guys yeah. will try to do. Exactly. That makes that makes some sense, right? So my friend did raise the question of why don't they just like you know obviously they have he's a they have like reams of uh, audio recording for these psychological evaluations. Why don't they just take you know that that audio and, du and dupe it into something that sounds like him saying stuff and then use that? No, he already agreed to do it. Why don't they just record him on Earth? Yeah, and uh, send that recording to <laughs> Mars. Maybe, maybe there is no. Maybe you can't do that here. You don't know. <laughs> Well, Even if someone had to manually carry like a CD or or a USB drive uh, all the way to Mars, Brad Pitt didn't a, have to go and jeopardize the mission. It's a movie. It's a movie. Um, but uh, even if you agree that for some reason he had to go, and the way you could explain that is to say, like, if the father responds, <laughs> this is they would this want. Is, this is such like a cinema sin thing. You're you're no, really no, demolishing, like, buddy. 
No, I'm trying to defend it because they could say that it's if Brad Pitt is actually there and allow his me, father uh, responds. Allow me to defend it, Hugh. Because without, without, without him going to space, there's no movie. <laughs> no, 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 but I am defending it anyway um, uh, by saying... The... But, but, Hugh, but Hugh, as they, as they establish in the film, to, to, to poke a hole in your attempted um, defense of it... They're not. It doesn't really matter if he responds or not. They just need him to to acknowledge it or accept it, so they can track his location, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> so fuck so you. So it is dumb. They should fuck just go Astra. <laughs> Yeah, this should have been a movie where Brad Pitt just goes to therapy like a normal person. <laughs> uh, all right, I, I should give the film some more credit. I'll give it some good good points. Um, I, I do like the fact that McBride is primarily responsible for the death of all the crew members. Yeah, I, I like that it's, a, it's not afraid to make him seem like a bad person. <laughs> Although I would have liked to see some some consequences to his action when he reaches Earth. He can't just, like, hang about and drink coffee and reconnect with Liv Tyler. In fairness, Hugh, um, uh, I feel like they probably were like, you know what, you did kill those three people, but also you saved the rest of humanity, so we're going to give you some leeway. But they would have saved the rest of humanity anyway, right? I mean, that's you don't know. That's what they were going to do. Thank you. Uh, as we as the earlier the film established, the the crew on that ship besides President were totally <laughs> confident. <laughs> so, who's to say what they would have done? Um. Anyway, I was trying to praise great. the film. Yeah. Go ahead. So yeah, as I said, I like the fact that that McBride is kind of morally compromised, um, and I also like the fact that when he finally confronts his dad. His, his, and his dad's like, yeah, I never cared about you or your mother. I never once thought about <laughs> that, that, you. <laughs> <great>. <laughs> oh, I don't give a shit about Earth. I don't give a shit about Mars. <laughs> and then he's just like, kill, kill me, son. Kill me. Let me go. Let me go. Great stuff. There was nothing for me on Earth. <laughs> uh, and I just, I just love the part where Brad Pitt's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I like confronting sort of the the nothingness of the universe right Hmm. and realizing that this is actually not a bad thing that humanity is all there is it's like one man's mission to overcome the disconnection from humanity that was born in him from his father yeah it's also sort of projected onto the military industrial complex as a whole Mm. and he comes back and he's like yeah <laughs> Maybe he was on like a prison furlough when that's that scene is recorded. I, it would have been great if it just ended with "you are sentenced to execution." At <laughs> <laughs> Astra. Yeah, I, I I really love this film a lot. I'm excited to see it again. This film could have done with more killer apes. It would have been great if like he goes to the spaceship with his dad. And there's like a space and there's a space suit and he turns it around and it's a killer baboon. <laughs> or his dad's been breeding experimental evil killer baboons. And that, that was the real what the what the conflict between the, the members were. <laughs> if I if I can't find intelligent life forms, goddammit, I'm gonna make my own. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, I think we can both agree uh, this film is God Astra. Bad Astra. A A A plus. So I think our rating system should be we we each make a pun of the title that reflects our opinion. So you said God Astra. Yeah. I say Bad Astra. I feel like that's that's a, a widening your feelings for stuff. You had a, a more of a mixed response, I feel. That's true. So not bad. Astra. Astra. 
Not bad, Astra. <laughs> there you go. But it's kind of bad. <laughs> not kind not of bad. bad. Astra. Could have been could have been better, Astra. <laughs> no, let's. Just, I'll go with kind of bad, Astra. Okay, that works. That's our new system. We're we're sticking to it. It's fucking gonna be a movie that lasts forever. It will be an amazing forever movie. That movie will be in the top top fifty movies of all time. Yes. I'm saying that now. Without me in it. Probably. And that's why it is. Because I'm not in it. Again, I haven't seen it. I was, uh... Oh man, I was so excited. <laughs> Look for the DVD extras, hopefully. Pass a piece of pizza, baby. I want some pizza. Lay me out a slice. Fetch a felon feature for me. It's a police story, dig them fights. Pizza talk, do you have any pizza talk, you? I do, actually. Wow. I actually did have one pizza, now that I thought about it. Well, let's start with your smaller pizza story, and then we'll get to my massive pizza story. Um, there was one day over the weekend where I didn't feel like making dinner. So I said I, ma- I put a pizza in the oven, and then I ate that. So was this a frozen pizza that was in your was in your freezer? Yep. Yep. It was a margarita pizza. Was it good? It was fine. What was your what's your pizza news? So you know Uber Eats. I do know Uber Eats. Did you use Uber Eats, you piece of shit? Do you know why I used Uber Eats? Because you're a lazy bum. Because they said, here's thirty dollars if you use Uber Eats for the first time. Ah. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> So, um, I, I did a lot of research. I looked into what was the best bang for my buck. Like how much food could I get out of this? And I eventually landed upon pizza because most of the things you really have to eat in the one sitting and that's it. But if I get a massive pizza, a family sized pizza, and there was also room to get garlic bread and uh, chips as well. Is it a $30 credit or just $30 off of one order? $30 off your first purchase. Okay, so you couldn't make a multiple purchases with it. No, that's right. You don't, you don't get like a credit of $30. Right? Correct. Yeah. You can only make so you one, have to do it all at once. Right, but you can make $30 worth of food in one. Yes. Go. Like if, if I had decided instead to buy something for $15, I would have forfeited the rest of the credit. Right. So it was it was critical that I used up the entire $30. And to do that, I had to chip in $2.50 of my own money because that's the way it worked out. But it was worth it. So um, after extensive research, I just went with, like, the cheap and cheerful, shitty old-school pizza place that's nearby. Mm -hmm. How was it? It wasn't very good. That's such a shock. And um, the delivery guy took a while to get here. And he sort of went around the wrong side of the house. And it was pretty... <laughs> and then he, he went into... Was, a, he got stopped at a, a resting a, a legal yes, party. Yes, yes, yes. And yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, that's, that's a great foreshadowing of, the, of our later discussion. I don't know what you're talking um, about. And then... Um, so by the time I actually ate it, it was a bit lukewarm to cold. Well, you could throw it into the old oven and heat it up yourself. That was okay. I got through that. But there was so much of it, I wanted to get my, the, the biggest economical benefit. So I spread it over three nights, right? Nice. Now, I'm a fan of cold pizza. Mm. 
because you're. I think that's honestly the best way to eat left leftover pizza, but it doesn't suit every pizza. If 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 it's kind of a bad pizza, which this was, honestly, it tasted pretty bad, lukewarm. So I expected it was going to taste pretty bad cold, right? So I started to research the best ways to reheat pizza. So where, first of all, where do you stand on this? Do you eat pizza cold if it's leftover no. or do you try and reheat it? I heat it up in the oven. You heat it up in the oven? Yeah. That is what I did too. But what is your method? I usually put it around 425 Fahrenheit and then mm-hmm. throw it in there and then eat it. Put it on a baking sheet typically. I have found the ideal way of oh. reheating it. Well, I'm, I'm writing this down as we speak. So it doesn't, it doesn't have the same problems that it does if you just reheated it in an oven at that temperature, mm. uncovered, as you did. I mean, that works to some degree, but it's, not, it's never as good as it was, right? That's, I mean, that's, but that's, that's the, the price you pay for leftovers. That seems to be the price you pay, but you can actually get pretty close with this method from Cook's Illustrated. Nani? So here's what you do. You place the pizza on a uh, baking tray with a rim. Okay. A rimmed baking tray, if you will. Sure. You set it on the bottom rack of the oven, and the oven's not on at this point. It's a cold oven. Mm -hmm. You cover the baking tray with tin foil, and you set the temperature to 275 degrees Fahrenheit and heat for 25 minutes. How many minutes? 25 minutes. It's a slow process, um, and there's various sciencey reasons for it, but it results in... At what temperature? 275. Yeah, okay. Degrees Fahrenheit? Yeah, this is Fahrenheit. 25 to 30 minutes, we might need a bit longer. Wow, that's, that's, pretty, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty low. Now, I'll read from their website just to explain it for you. Why does this method work? Oh, God. Like other breads stored for a day, pizza crust initially hardens, not through moisture okay, let's, loss, let's, let's go on. but because oh, it next, starches next, undergo next, 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 a process called retrogradation, whereby the starch molecules crystallize and absorb moisture, making the pizza crust appear stiff and dry. As long as the pizza has been stored well-wrapped, however, retrogradation can be temporarily reversed by reheating the pizza to at least 140 degrees, the temperature at which the starch crystals break down and release the trapped moisture, softening the crust. Placing the slices in a cold oven lets them warm up gradually with ample time to release moisture and soften, while sealing the pan helps keep them from drying out as they reheat. Finally, placing the pan as low as possible in the oven means the slices are heated from the bottom up, so the underside of the the crust crisps, but the toppings don't shrivel and it worked like a dream it tasted as good as i remembered these particular slices from this pizza place no 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 as i've had this pizza at the actual Ah, store ah, before at the recommended temperature and it yeah it tasted on par with that with a a, a proper temperature it sounds like you should have done that initially instead of eating it lukewarm that's true but i had not done this research at that point so i was living in ignorance so that's okay. pizza. So that's pizza. Well, but not quite, Hugh. No. Oh. Because we're going to talk about a film about pizza. Project time. It's project time. Project time. It's project time. Project time. It's project time. Project time. 
it's project time. So we looked at two further films from Jafar Panahi, The Circle from 2000 and Crimson Gold from 2003, as we said at the top of the podcast, and we'll begin our discussion with the film The Circle. So Hamza, what is the film The Circle? Jesus Christ. <coughs> what are you eating? Uh, some chips. So Hugh, there's a country called Iran, and did you know there's some pretty regressive laws about what women are allowed to do? No. Well, you should, because of the film that you just watched called The Circle. Uh, it's a sort of interlocking anthology film uh, about women in Iran. Hmm. Um, all connected by the shared uh, experience of having been in prison or about to be going to prison. I'm going to hand the baton for you to finish explaining what the film is. All right. Um, so this film was banned in Iran. As as the majority of Jafar Panahi's films are. It's the film that started his struggle with the Iranian government in earnest. Yeah. Because pretty much from here on in, he has a lot of trouble getting his films out. The Circle definitely displays a stylistic development mm. from a visual standpoint. Yes. Comparing this to his first two films, The Mirror and The White Balloon. So this is a darker, denser Tehran than that of uh, those aforementioned films. And Panahi indulges in a number of striking tracking shots as we follow the lives of women struggling to get by in an oppressive patriarchal society. Did you write this down? I did, yes. Obviously. It doesn't actually explain the plot. I just jumped into whatever I read. Only cowards write things down. Did you like it? Um, or do we need to explain it more? Well, should we explain actually what the plot is? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So it essentially follows five women? Well, it, it features a number of women in the film. Maybe four main stories are followed. Yes. So the film opens in a maternity war ward where um, a woman is sort of dismayed to learn that uh, her daughter's new child is going to be a girl. And from there sort of cuts to the story of um, these three young women who, according to Wikipedia, have just escaped prison. Yes. Now, which I was kind of unclear about in the film itself, which I don't think is a negative necessarily. But they, they seem to be on the on the run from the authorities, regardless. They do make reference to the fact that they, um, or at least some of the women that we saw, we see in the film, 
escaped by concealing themselves with women who were on temporary release. Yes. Uh, so cuts to these, this group of three women, one of whom is captured by the police very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as they attempt to uh, raise enough money to buy a bus ticket to um, go to one of the women's hometowns, um, it sort of follows their struggles to do so and their encounters with the authorities and the lengths of, to which they're willing to um, put themselves through in order to attain this money and and get this bus ticket, right? Um, and then from there, we follow the story of a woman who is a friend of one of the, the escapees um, who has also had escaped from jail. Did I get that right? I think she was possibly recently released, yes. if not escaped. Yeah. yeah. Um, who uh, who's introduced sort of uh, on the run from an uh, angry group of men who have invaded their her home. Um, and it sort of follows her quest to meet up with a hospital worker in order to get an illicit abortion. And then the final strand, um, it's, it's not, it doesn't have quite the same central protagonist as the last two, but um, it follows at first a woman who... Um, who has abandoned her female child <laughs> and then mm-hmm. who is picked up with police um, as sort of possibly um, attempting to solicit um, men who are driving by for reasons of prostitution um, then sort of cuts to another woman who has been picked up for prostitution as well. And that's basically the whole film. <laughs> and and the end- ending is that they all end up in jail. Yeah, yeah. in the Again. same cell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, what did you think about this film? So this is a denser, darker Tehran than that of his first two films. Wait, wait, you, you. Is, in a is, there, is there a lot striking of, number of striking jacking shots? <laughs> Don't say. Yeah, I guess, I guess we could talk about this stylistically and then we'll get to our opinions a mm-hmm. bit later. But yeah, I, as I said, it does represent, I think, a, a development stylistically. It, 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 it represents a darker, denser Tehran a darker, denser Tehran. I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, and to emphasize, get this, to emphasize the film's central theme. Yeah. Panahi uses what looks to me like a lot of telephoto lenses to condense the planes of action, especially in a lot of the crowded urban scenes. And this, get this, contributes to the feeling that the city is closing in around the characters. And wait for it, wait for it. This is further underscored wait, wait, by the repeated visual motive of prison-like bars and frames within frames no which contain and confine the women even before they are returned to an actual, the actual physical reality of a jail cell. Not to mention the fact that the film takes place over the course of a single day, so the fading daylight gives it this fatalistic atmosphere. Yes. So you, what are these developments a good thing or a bad thing in your eyes? We have the metaphor of prison, oh and we have the metaphor of a circle, and these elements give the film its structure. Uh, um, so did I like it? Yeah. Or, or, or okay, okay, here, I'll put it like this. Do you, did you like it, or do you hate women? <laughs> do you, no, did you like it, or do you endorse the treatment of women? Right. Do, you, do you think that um, the... Laws that structure the treatment of women in Iran should be imported to Australia. That's the, that's the real question. Yes, yeah. 
Um, I think it's noteworthy as well. I'll just make another, another aside before I get to my opinion. <laughs> make another that, note and, that it is noteworthy. It is noteworthy. This film is noteworthy. Do you agree? Worthy of a note. Um, yeah, yeah, and this note. is something that the, the Panahi himself commented upon in an interview. But the film doesn't really feature any individual antagonists, no. per se. The antagonists are the institutions and the traditions yeah. that inhibit these women, but they're, no, they're not actually like personified in an evil man in this film, right? No. And that was a very conscious effort uh, by Panahi, and that seemed to support his, his philosophy about his art. Yeah, it sort of it fits into the sort of uh, more, I don't know, like Mar- Marxist-esque critique of this film too. But although, although I will say that the film strains to not over-dramatise these women's struggle, mm. I did find the overall effect a little bit heavy-handed, I think. I'm hesitant to criticise this film too much because like, the production of the film essentially constitutes a political act, even yeah. if it wasn't specifically intended to be one it certainly became one yes and maybe you know there's not as much room for art house vagaries in that kind of context but um i didn't find it like that satisfying even though i could admire a lot of the things that went into it the performances were as compelling as usual visually it's often very striking Mm -hmm. um but yeah overall it felt a little bit transparent like i kind of got the point of the film most of the way through the film and it was kind of hammered home through these repeated visual motives. I'm like, yeah, okay. I get that society is a prison. I, I understand. And it, it, it sort of, um, made it not register as effectively as it might have. So just to answer the question, you are, you are a sexist. Yes. Correct. I still think it's a, it's a good film though. Mm. What did you think? I really like this film a lot. Uh, definitely more than his previous two garbage pictures. <laughs> um, but I do think I, th- I think one of the reasons why I find this film uh, more satisfying than either of the two of his other films is that, uh, for the most part, you know you're you're forced to identify the, the characters that he's presenting in sort of an existential way. We're not giving many details about their specifically as he sort of alluded to, but they're not they're not grafted. They don't have like some um, you know. Uh, overly sentimentalized backstory that's grafted on, and you only no. sort of cap. You only sort of understand their crimes through like slight references. You know, I, I do think that works to uh, temper sort of the moralizing. I don't know the you know sometimes the problem with with moralizing film is sort of you know burdened with this this task. You yeah, know? yeah. Where a lot of the women are not portrayed as like you know. Um, they're not like saints, you know what I mean? And I think, I think that's a really effective sort of strategy that this film does. There's something, just a matter of, matter of factness in its depiction of these, yeah. these characters' lives. And I found that to be really effective. I also sort of like the way this introduces more sort of, um, genre elements into his standard filmmaking practices, right? Where they're, uh, especially in the first segment, it is very much sort of like a, you know, uh, it functions as uh, like a prison escape movie, really. Like, you know, the, these characters are on the run and you sort of, because it has that genre apparatus, you, you sort of automatically identify with them, you know? Hmm. And I thought that was a really effective way to get you into the film. Um, I did, I did find this sort of like the circularity of the opening and the ending to be, um, yeah, a little overdone. And I, I don't think I needed them at all. I needed it at all. 
Yeah. But I like the way that it sort of, and I, I think it would have been better if you had just sort of um, been forced to like weave the conclusion of each of the stories, you know, up to your imagination. Hmm. You don't really need that, like the, the cherry on top of them all being in prison again, you know, but I found um, one of the segments to be really moving, which is the segment of the woman trying to get an abortion. Uh, and there's one sequence in that, uh, or there's one, one portion of that that I thought that made me like cry, which is when she is talking to her old friend who works at the hospital or her, the person that she, friend maybe is judging a bit, but like prison acquaintance. Yes. Um, and there's just something about the way that this sequence is depicted where on one hand you are sort of frustrated by this character's unwillingness to help out the, the protagonist of the segment to get an abortion. At the same time, you, you, you sort of understand the reasons behind it. It's, it's almost like a Renoirian uh, touch, right? Yeah, and that, that does seem to fit with his philosophy when you read some of his interviews. Um, he seems to take the viewpoint that, that no one is inherently good or bad and that it's, you know, it's, everyone has their reasons, <laughs> as, as I say. Uh, as, as Renard says. <laughs> but um, I, I want to do an interview with him and be like, yeah, but you know, what, about, what about Hitler, Mr. Benai? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought, I thought that se- sequence is so effective in, in moving that it really sort of uh, ameliorated some of the heavy-handedness of the, the rest of the film. There are there are great there are great moments in this and some really great parts. Um, I'm not so fond of films that switch between you know mostly discrete stories, but I did like the way that technique was introduced in the opening section. So you mentioned the fact that we start in a hospital and we set up uh, a situation with some other characters and then it immediately like switches perspective to mm. the three escaped prisoners. Mm. I, I really liked the way that that uh, transitions so quickly. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of a bold choice to open a film with. I and it, also, it was also a good way of adding an element of social commentary that didn't feel forced. Yeah, definitely. We, we get the social critique implicit in what happens yeah. in that opening scene in the hospital. Yeah, it's, it's all dramatized. It's not, it's not like a narrativized version. Yeah, and that was, that was really effective. And then we switch perspectives and we get, you know, a different um, portrayal. And I think, I think one of the reasons this film is also more effective is that, unlike sort of how we talked about with uh, Abbas Karastami's 10, where it, some of the sort of more social commentary segments of that felt a little like con- overly constructed and like not yes yes uh, well, most of the dialogue in this film feels very like naturalistic and like appropriate to the context that he's he's showing you know like, it doesn't feel like i mean it's obviously the subject of the film but it fits better with the scenarios that he's presenting versus in in 10 and, and some other karasami films where it feels like grafted on to otherwise sort of unrelated story yeah and th- there's no like overly um, philosophical discussion that's that kind of rings a bit false. There's no, there's no sequence where Juliet Binoche and uh, you uh, traipse around Italy. And <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, I thought this film was this was really solid, and I, I thought the the cinematography was like really beautiful, especially especially as the the film sort of transitions to night. There's just some amazing like low light sequences that are really brilliantly conceived and shown. So 
I should also qualify my opinion of this film by stating that I'm one of the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's okay. You, I'm one of the bad ones, so we balance that. Um, no, actually, I actually genuinely should qualify my opinion for this film by saying that I had a really frustrating experience just trying to watch it on the streaming service that it <laughs> was on. Well, Hugh, can I introduce you to something called Torrenting? No, this was an official legal streaming service. Oh, this was SBS, wow. a television network here that, that had this film on their movie roster. But there was like a, an error that kept occurring basically every two minutes throughout the entire film. That's so that hey, was Hugh, my Hugh, experience You know what, you know what uh, stopped me from having an error like that? Hmm. It was um, finding this film on a Russian torrent site and then downloading it and watching it on my computer. <coughs> well, we've got that audio now, so I can uh, use that against you in future. You know what? You know what's also notable about uh, the circle, Hugh? Hmm. Is it won an award called the Golden uh, the Golden Lion? Can you tell me the most recent winner of the Golden Lion? Uh, Jojo Rabbit. Uh, no, that is the TIFF People's Choice Award. What's that one? Ah. Uh. Ah, oh, um, Joker. Yeah. <laughs> the film I got to cover the week after it comes out because I don't want to get shot to death. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably you don't have that fear in your country that has strict gun control. Nope. But why would they shoot up a... Like, like, wouldn't that be the last... If they had to choose a film to shoot up the audience of, right? Uh, Supposedly, people, the fear with the Joker is that they're saying it's supporting, you know, um, these insult-type shooter uh, people. There's been, there's been threads on 4chan that may or may not be jokes about shooting up theaters. Oh really? I'm gonna, of the joke. I'm gonna, I'm gonna avoid it at least for the opening weekend. <laughs> wow. Okay. So anyway. Um. Yeah. The circle. I I liked it. Didn't maybe didn't completely love it. Mm, definitely my favorite. You loved it. Panahi. I didn't. I would not say I loved it. But it's definitely my favorite Panahi that I've seen. I think we can both recommend it. Yes. It's definitely commendable. Good effort. effort. <laughs> Good effort, Panahi. Maybe maybe tone down the women a little bit. <laughs> a good thing we're going to talk about a film that has only one female character in it next. But first, let's hear this expertly crafted theme song. Okay. Or introduction. Made by you, presumably, because I did that Astro one. Yeah, boy. Could it get any Okay, great. So uh, next up is Crimson Gold. What's Crimson Gold, Hugh? What is Crimson Gold? Yeah, what is Crimson Gold? Why is it? Why was that film called Crimson Gold? That was the name of one of the jewels that they were looking at. Uh. So Crimson Gold is about a police police. <laughs> uh, Crimson Gold. Forgot to call the pizza segment uh, its name. Police story, but it's in the theme song. Doesn't matter. Okay, great. Um, so Crimson Gold is about a police. <laughs> I'll start that again. It's about a pizza Gold. delivery man. Jesus fucking Christ. Crimson Gold is about a pizza delivery guy who occasionally dabbles in thievery, and it opens with a botched um, jewelry heist at a jewelry shop that results in aforementioned pizza delivery guy murdering the owner and then 
turning the gun on himself. Mm. It was apparently based on a real story of someone who tried to rob a jewellery store and ended up doing pretty much the same thing. And uh, it was written by one Abbas Kiristami. Nani? And uh, I believe it was also inspired by something that happened to Panahi himself um, when he was travelling and was detained by US airport security for refusing to provide his fingerprints in the wake of, you know, post 9-11 security measures. And uh, out of that new story and that particular event, this film was born, maybe. Okay, so who cares? What, what, what's the rest of the film about? So that's where it starts. It starts with our protagonist shooting himself in the head. And then it tracks backwards and we follow him over the course of uh, a period of time and uh, see what happens to him and why he ends up doing what he does, maybe. So the, the first encounter he has at this jewellery store is he's humiliated because they, they won't accept him and his mate as patrons because they, they're not wearing the right clothes. They don't seem like the right sort of people, the right class to to patronise this jewelry, nice jewellery store. And that eventually turns to violence in the end. Right. That's the film. What did you think of the film, mate? Um, I think there are some commendable parts of this film, for sure. But... You know, overall, I felt a little unengaged by it. Mm. What did you think? What did you think about it? I actually much preferred this to the circle. Mm. Uh, I think the the stylistic advances that we saw uh, with the circle are here put to better use in the single in the service of a single narrative thread. Well, uh, I like experimentalism and narrative polyphony. Oh, you're just a boring old Cubanist. Yeah, and I think I think Hussein. Amadadin, who who is a real life police pizza. Jesus fucking Christ! Okay, let's see again. Hussein Amadadin is a real life pizza delivery guy, who apparently suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and was very difficult to work with. But he turns in a, uh, I think, profoundly authentic, which makes sense. And I thought moving performance, mm. which is really the heartbeat of this film. It, I, I was struggling to, to account for my own opinion towards sort of the um, ethics of casting someone with paranoid schizophrenia. No, but I don't think, uh, apparently they didn't know he had paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. And there was something that emerged when they were shooting and stuff. So mm. it wasn't like, let's find someone with paranoid schizophrenia and exploit them for this film. Well, I, did, I didn't know that. It would have been disingenuous, but... <laughs> As far as I discovered from my brief research, um, that was not something they were aware of in advance. Yeah. I mean, I think this, scene, this movie has some very well-made sequences, but I don't know. Cool. So I think, I think the screenplay is solid. I think the way that Kiristami integrates the social commentary into the narrative and doesn't rely too much on those sort of Kiristami-esque speeches that we've seen <laughs> yeah. in the past. Did he, did he, was, is he the sole credited writer or did they co-write it? Yes, he's the sole credited writer. But I do think it's Panahi's direction and, and Hussain's performance that really makes this film what it is. And I really, really loved the pacing. Mm. Like those beautiful tracking shots of Hussain yeah. on his bike. Um, and, and, and again, like The Circle, particularly excellent nighttime photography. Yeah, I think if there's one thing we can, uh, one quality we can assign to Panahi is that 
Uh, all of his films are about movement of one kind or another. Hmm. But there, there are stretches of this film that are slower than I think anything in his previous films. But I personally found it remarkable how captivating they were. Sure. Nonetheless. Like just with Hussein sort of shuffling about, trying yeah. to go about his business yeah, yeah. in the face of these obstacles. And uh, this is something that's, that's been mentioned in reviews. I did think of Taxi Driver at times. Mm. I think it would be misleading to, to sort of imply that the film's indebted to it. Yeah, or that it, it feels it much really, like that. It didn't really uh, come to me at all. Well, there's certainly a similarity in the way it's framed around this, this marginalised character's point of view and the way they ultimately turn their frustrations um, around their impotent social standing into violence. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel like the the um, Usain's a much more I don't know likable character than Travis Bickle is. Oh uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's there's definitely some similarities, and I think that now that now that you mentioned that, I do think that the scene where like they show his like empty apartment is kind of similar to yeah a similar sequence. That, to I, that's that's a great moment where he's just living in this yeah. like tiny squalid cube. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like he, he seems more like or less socially inept than Travis Pickle is, too. Mm. You know. And also, there's not the element of like media critique that's in Taxi Driver. No, no, no. I don't. I don't reckon they're similar films, but there is there is something. Yeah, I guess they're sort of like you know parapathetic um, wanderers. But again, I like the fact that he's not a simplistic character. No, and that um, he he's not presented as. You know, a, a, a guy that is wronged by society and then turns bad, per yeah. se. Um, nor is he presented as a particularly nice person in general. Although he does have good qualities. No, he's just kind of a, a guy. Yeah, he's just, he's, just, he's just a guy. Like, from the start, we know he steals women's purses and stuff. Yeah, but who doesn't, really? But, you know, he's also capable of some kindness when he hands around pizzas at this sort yeah. of bizarre scene in which the authorities are waiting people are, wa- are waiting for people to leave a party so they can arrest them. Yeah. It's a good scene. And there's a partic- there's a particularly amazing sequence I think the best part of the film is when he goes to deliver a pizza at this uh, sort of penthouse mm. apartment. Yeah, I like that sequence but it felt a little that one felt a little like too social commentary to me. I I kind of agree with you in terms of the portrayal of the the rich guy there. I did, I did like just him wandering around this apartment. And... Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Like that's the best part. Once once um, he goes on the phone and sort of leaves, wanders around, takes his shoes off, and then jumps in the swimming pool. It's like a it's like a yeah suicide esque gesture. Yeah, that immediately precedes um, returning to the scene of the crime that we saw at the start yeah. of the film, which we know how it ends. Yeah. Um, but I like that the fact that that doesn't like, it's not like that is like, it's not like a straightforward cause and effect. Like, yeah. oh, him just going to this apartment. That now it makes sense why he did what he did, yeah. you know. It's like a, a culmination as opposed to like mm. a, you know, single event. I, I, I'm mad at rich man, so I kill. Yeah. Like that doesn't seem what it's about at all. And the no. rich guy doesn't even treat him badly per se. No, he treats him pretty well. well. Yeah. Pretty well, yeah. Yeah. Gives him pizza and stuff. <laughs> and money. 
and, and, and alcohol, illicit alcohol. I like that there's this, there's a great moment where, so he delivers the pizza to the rich guy. The rich guy had ordered them because he had women over and they wanted pizza. But by the time the pizzas are delivered, the women are gone for whatever reason. So he tells him to come in and they share the pizza together. He goes, you eat all the pizza. I'm not hungry. And then like the woman calls him or he calls the woman or whatever. And he's talking to her and he's overhearing the conversation while he's sitting at the table eating pizza. Mm. And he's finished one of the pizzas and he's going for the next box. And then he hears on the phone, um, the guy go, no, you can still come over. There's pizza left. Um, there's still two pizzas left. And then he goes and reluctantly puts the pizza back in the box and closes it. And then he kind of just like, yeah, fuck it. While I'm here, I may as well just take advantage of it. Cause I thought he would then just leave because yeah. the woman is coming, but he just takes out a bottle of alcohol, kicks plastered. his shoes off, wanders around and then jumps in the pool. I mean, wouldn't you? There's something about that. And I can't explain the effect that scene is having on me, but I found that quite moving. Okay. Uh, it didn't move me that much to be honest. So, to my mind, I think I think the two films that have stood out the most to me, to be honest, are The Crimson Gold and I think probably The White Balloon, actually. Mm. Probably my two favourites so far. Well, it's highlighting the differences in our, the things that we appreciate in cinema. I mean, I think this film is, is good and there's definitely admirable qualities, but and I just find this sort of, like, extremely interior... Um, you know, sort of neorealist film to be a little, I don't know. I think, I do think there are like some really great parts of it, but uh, it just felt a little, it felt a little pro pro forma to me, to be honest. Mm. Interesting. I mean, I do think, I do think he has a great sort of um, sense of showing like the, the unspoken rules of like Iranian society and how they like govern, you know, class and, mm. and such. I, th- I think the two sequences of the jewelry store are really good. It's just high, high, like highlighting the little like gestures and and other parts that sort of you know demonstrate the oppression that that Hussein and, and the rest of like his social class sort of you know experiences when they try to enter into these situations. Hmm. Um, do you think that scene at the beginning where he's like being instructed by the or the, the older pickpocket comes up to him? Do you think that was a reference to Pickpocket, <laughs> the Brisson film? Could have been. It definitely reminded me of the sequence where um, the main character of that film gets trained in the cafe by the other guy. Yeah, that was the most Kiristami like speech in the film because mm. that's that's the only time it really gets into outright philosophizing. Yeah, and I do, I do like that the way the the film opens up to is like this like sort of you're not sure what's happening and then it cuts to like the past immediately and you're not really. You're not, you're not like made aware of the fact that like a title card or anything. It's just sort of like this like jump cut. This one was like a solid like three and a half star for me. You know. Wow. I'd recommend both films this week. Actually, once again, to be honest. And but I I, I think I prefer Crimson Gold. I, I definitely prefer the, the Circle to Crimson Gold. Uh, what are we doing next of his films? Uh, we're going to do Offside, and then the reason, the the thing that uh, Offside caused, which is, this is not a film. Cool. Uh, so next is bonus features. Is there another segment that we do? Oh, it's to the box office. Burn, Hollywood, burn, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. It's not even just the box office anymore. Burn. Hollywood, burn. That's right, Mama. Mm. 
Hollywood burn. Uh, come on, hurry up. Do you have your stats pulled up? No. Oh, Jesus Christ, you're so incompetent. But which bit are we doing first? What do you mean? The news or oh, the box God, office? Oh, God, I totally forgot about the news. <laughs> what, what, um, man, because you're doing it who won. What, what was the news that we talked about last time? I don't, I, who cares about who won? Let's just do no, no, no. news. That was the great, that was the great, okay, fine, fine. But then who chooses the news item that we do then? Or do we just both read? Know. Why don't we just both read a random news item? Okay. Uh, all right. Entertainment news. I'm just going to type that. <laughs> <laughs> but first, we have to do the box office. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. Box office hooray. So, uh, he, what, Hunter, what, what was the number what one was the film number in America? One film in Australia, and then you have to say we have to, you have to avoid that with Hunter. What was the number one film in America? Um, well, well you, Hunter, it was, it was three, two, one. Uh, Downton Abbey, Abbey, and it grossed thirty-one thousand dollars. Grossed one and a half million here. Wow. What, the, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> why? Why did you want to see Downton Abbey? What a bunch of fucking garbage. That trailer, I texted you that one time, but it makes me want to kill myself. It looks like such shit. Uh, anyway, next. Uh, what what entertainment news have you brought to the table today, Hugh? So we each bring a piece. That makes sense. That works. <laughs> each bring a piece of news. Uh. And hope it's not the same one. But it can be. <laughs> but we hope it's not. But mine's great. Mine's great. You, you go first. All right. Let me just quickly choose the piece of news that I've already pre-selected. <laughs> yeah. go, go for it. He selected weeks ago. I'm very excited to discover that uh, Terence Howard has uh, opened up the flower of life and found the real wave conjugations <laughs> that we've been looking for for 10,000 years. What? <laughs> what does that mean? So Terence Howard announced he <laughs> has retired from acting <laughs> at the Emmys. Oh, what a shame. And his verbatim comment... Which I can read to you for more. Um, Everyone keeps trying to tell me, don't say it's forever. But this was in regards to acting. But I've spent 37 years pretending to be people that Mm. people can pretend to watch and enjoy what I'm doing when I've made some discoveries in my own personal life with the science that Pythagoras was searching for. I was able to open up the flower of life properly and find the real wave conjugations that we've been looking for for 10,000 years. Why would I continue walking on water for tips? When I've got an entire generation to teach a whole new world. <laughs> uh, famous wife beater, Terrence Howard. Exactly. I was going to say that if you didn't. <laughs> well, I already got you. Just to be clear. His, his, his final acting work uh, appears like it's going to be a film called Cutthroat City, which is the second film directed by uh, the Wu-Tang Clan's RZA. He's also going to prove that gravity is only an effect and not a force. Okay, uh, my turn? Yeah. Well, Hugh, um, so uh, I don't know if you know that much about uh, uh, film and TV production, but apparently there's something called uh, Avid Media Composer, okay? I do know about the editing software, yes. Yes. And, Hugh, apparently Mac Pros running Avid Media Composer are refusing to reboot. Really? So it sounds like that... uh, might be a little bit of a problem in the old film production. Uh, great. Uh, so next, uh, bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus 
you. So I watched a, a couple of films this week. Okay. I'll just, yeah. I'll just run through them in, in reverse chronological order. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, earlier today, I watched a minute long Satoshi Kon short called Good Morning. It's pretty good. You should check it out. That's uh, an mm-hmm. anime film. A little anime film. A minute uh, long. Film I watched. A minute long. Yeah. So it's a quick watch. Um, previous to that, uh, I watched a film called uh, The R Cinema Oscar Special, <laughs> which is totally not at all related to On Cinema, At the Cinema, the hit uh, television program, or web series program. Um, but is Our a Cinema Oscar, Oscar Special. special. By... So was that a film yeah. released in, in cinemas? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no, it was uh, direct to YouTube. Direct to YouTube. <laughs> it was, it was direct to YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but you, I, I believe that you watched uh, two of the films that, uh, or at least one of the films that we watched for today on YouTube. So yeah, but they weren't released direct to YouTube. Well, well that hardly matters. And we they're watched, not even considered films. films. <laughs> we watched films that are. Our cinema Oscar <laughs> special is not even presenting itself as a film. It's just presenting itself as an Oscar special. Uh, it could it could it could be a film, so it doesn't matter. But uh, our cinema Oscar not a film. Okay, well, <laughs> great. Uh, so uh, before that, I watched the Michael Mann film Black Hat because um, I had acquired a uh, or I sourced a version of the director's cut, which is uh, except for some brief um, screenings places has only been. Shown on television in America. You so you illegally hacked a version <laughs> of the director's cut. Uh, of Black I Hat. did not illegally hack anything, you. <laughs> uh, but I acquired a version of it <laughs> and watched it. Uh, I will say that the version I watched, I did not think was very good because it it, it included because it's a shit film. Uh, shut up! I, it included for whatever reason the like fades to commercial break, not the commercial breaks themselves, but just the shots where. You know, obviously it interrupted the film as intended to have it, you know, fade mm. to black. Which I thought was really annoying and really cut some of the, the pacing and the, the uh, you know, uh, engagement that I had with the film. Which I think is quite good. Uh, and I, I don't know why you're bad nothing, considering it, it stars a uh, countryman of yours. My countryman. Yeah. Uh, Chris Hemsworth. Um, in the role of his wife. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's probably the best film that he's in. So... <laughs> Uh, that's good stuff. Um, <laughs> it is a little unbelievable seeing him play a hacker, uh, <laughs> but uh, I feel like the film has enough sort of a, of a pulpy edge where you can kind of justify it, and it sort of goes along with the character's like life philosophy too. Um, but I really think this is a solid film, just about you know computer systems. Uh, you know, not too many films open with uh, <laughs> uh, soy futures getting hacked. Uh, and take 20 minutes to establish the main character, but uh, this one does, um, and it has this just this great sense of the I don't know incomprehensibility of uh, of the computer systems that govern the global financial market, um, mm. and uh, just how how difficult it can be to navigate that uh, as <laughs> either side of the wall. Um, um, but it's sort of about the character's moral awakening, um, and it ends with a uh, duel. Between uh, Chris Hemsworth with a uh, uh, ad hoc body suit uh, constructed of uh, ripped up uh, magazines and phone books <laughs> and a sharpened screwdriver <laughs> versus a sort of uh, a punchy um, 
almost uh, unknown Danish actor who plays his like black hat nemesis, which is in the middle of a Malaysian <laughs> street fair, which is legitimately great. <laughs> um, and I really think this film is, is pretty exceptional. Um, and, you know, most of, I don't know, I'm, I'm a big man fan. And uh, the digital photography in this is really beautiful, uh, as it is in my voice. I've not seen Public Enemies, so I can't comment on that one. But I think this is a really great film. Um, but I only get four stars because it was marred by the fact that I watched it in this shitty version. So, that's like so you're a big man off. fan, yeah. and yet you like The Circle. Yeah, I know. Um, so, continuing the man trend, the, the next film I watched uh, is Sofia Coppola's um, feature like debut, The Virgin Suicides. Which I also uh, found. I'm to your be... playground. Yeah, shut up. Uh, you, you have so many films to get to. Do you really want to extend this further? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, but it has this great sort of, um, you know, I, I think this is is clearly sort of a debut film, uh, in that you can really sort of tell um, from the Wikipedia Coppola's, page. Shut up. Was her first shut up. Coppola's influences in it, as you, I feel like you can often, you often do when you watch the debut films of, of directors. Um, you mean Coppola Daddy? No, I mean specifically the filmmaker that came to mind when I watched this was David Lynch. Uh, um, oh, you mean her influences yeah. are evident in, yes. in her first film? Yes. Yeah. I mean, okay. obvi- also, also the fact that her dad is Francis Ford Coppola, and, and uh, uh, she can afford to get you know big name stars in her film. Like uh, mm-hmm. Danny DeVito for one scene and uh, uh, Hayden Christensen, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> big name actor Hayden Christensen. Uh, this was the year of the Phantom Menace. Um, this doesn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, but it has this. So this great was before shot. he was a Star Wars. Uh, this is it. Just has a great sort of um, dreamy sequence, uh, uh, sense of this small town. Um, and unlike sort of, uh, I think, uh, Lynch's films, which, you know, are very, actually, this is sort of uh, bolstered by the fact that it, it almost functions as like this, a depiction of communal memory of this, of the titular event. Um, mm. And I thought it was really, um, you know, moving and it, 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 another film that really sort of um, attempts to satirize and, and deconstruct sort of its, the social circumstances it depicts via, you know, uh, strong characterization and stuff like that. Um, but I do think there's like some interesting distanciation that goes on here too, because <laughs> it also features this sort of strange, like disaffected, uh, narration, mm. um, which I think is really effective. Um, from Brad Pitt. Yeah. Um, and no, from, uh, <laughs> from fucking, uh, um, uh, Giovanni Rubisi of all people. <laughs> oh really? Okay. Yeah, who's not in the film <laughs> except for his Wow. Voice. That's weird. Yeah. It is, uh, but um, you mean AKA Phoebe's brother? I don't know what that means, but it has it has a great soundtrack, and I thought it was really really good. Um, you know, there's some stuff in it that feels a little that you can really sort of tell that uh, Coppola, you know, it was influenced by. I mean, it, it literally opens with like a similar sort of like panoramic view of this idyllic small town as Blue Velvet mm. does, as the soundtrack starts playing. Um, I'm your but I feel like this film is more like grounded in reality than than Winch's films tend to be, hmm. uh, and it acknowledges sort of like economic circumstances too, which um, Winch only references in in the abstract. Um, I also really liked the way that dude, you haven't it, seen this it movie. presents. Shut up. 
human activity <laughs> permeating spaces. <laughs> why, why don't you fuck off? <laughs> um, okay. That joke's not going to mean anything to anyone. Uh, just I'm great. moving on. So the uh, another film I watched is another short called A Meltdown, which is <laughs> which is directed by uh, at the at the behest of one of my friends. I watched this film, which is directed by one mm-hmm. of the leading philosophers of the Dark Enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> what you mean like the the intellectual dark web i do mean that wow yes one of the leading philosophers of the intellectual dark web before he became uh a dark and white figure was a sort of you know what accelerationism is no <laughs> it's this philosophy that uh it's kind of silly um but it's it's like the the way to um sort of counteract Capitalism is actually to accelerate its processes until it basically self-destructs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sort of was a proponent of that. Um, like following the, Marxism to its logical conclusion. Kind of. Um, and th- this is where this is how what this one was about, basically. Uh, it's just sort of like, it's almost like a, a synthesizer set that's like pounding electronic music that's um, has this uh, narration kind of writing computer voices of this like cyberpunk poem, uh, which I found to be... Uh, you know, it's compelling enough, I guess. One of my friends is, like, really obsessed with it for some reason, and I basically just watched it to placate him. Um, but it has its charms, if you like cyberpunk literature. Um, and there's one sequence <laughs> that I thought was really funny where there's just these, like, random shots of the Predator just hanging out. <laughs> I was just like, why, why is this in here? Because, like, the rest of it is just, like, this weird abstract imagery. And then there's just the Predator. There's, like, three Predators. You're like, What's, what the fuck? <laughs> um, okay. So then I watched, um, previous to that, I watched a film called uh, Evangelion 3.0, You Cannot Redo. Mm, what's that about? <laughs> so, Hugh, um, recently I've become obsessed with this anime television series called Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I'm going to talk about mm-hmm. a lot today, because I watched um, uh, four separate films about it and watched one twice. Um, and Evangelion 3.0, You Cannot Redo. Um, is sort of the... I wasn't planning to. So, uh, so um, the TV series came out in the mid-90s. Uh, you watched it while it was airing, apparently, as an impressionable yes, young, young child. Um, I watched some of it. And then it concluded with this feature-length film, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Um, and uh, their rebuild movies are sort of like a reimagining or possible continuation of this story. Um which uh, I'll talk about in depth. Um, the first one sort of follows the... Um, it's, it, it, it almost is... It, it's a really sort of um, pointless film to a large degree because it, it just is the first, like, six episodes of the show, almost shot-for-shot shot recreations of it with just, like, a bigger budget and CGI effects. Mm-hmm. So it, it is good in the sense that the first six episodes of the show are good. But it doesn't add anything to it, and it makes some of the characters... So it's redundant. Yeah, it's, it's redundant. Uh, except for, like, one sequence, which is new. And it adds some... Uh, it's, it's sort of... I mean, it's not... It, it's redundant and also is slightly worse than the, the TV series. Mm. Uh, in that it um, makes character... Some character motivations more explicit. Like, uh, in the show, just to give an example, there's a recurring image of the main character, Shinji Ikari, um, who suffers from, like, pretty severe depression and anxiety... Uh, doing as many depressive people do, uh, attempting to shut out the world by wearing headphones and sitting in his room listening to music constantly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the, the same image uh, recurs in uh, Evangelion um, 
1.0, which is called <laughs> You Are Not Alone. But uh, it recurs, and then there's another sequence where uh, the character is like, I like to listen to music because it helps shut off the outside world. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess what I sort of say it is that, uh, like your complaint with Ad Astra, I really didn't need this uh, sort of recurring image to be just directly explicated um, mm. to me. Uh, and unlike what I argue with Ad Astra, where I think there's, you know, I think I think the voiceover that is adds interesting elements. The sort of more explicit um, depiction of its of its subject matter does not like win the movie version any favors. Um, the second mm-hmm. movie is better because it deviates from the film or the TV series uh, in ways that sort of play on your expectations of watching it um, and, and includes some like interesting new stuff. But overall, it's like. It does shut up. I'm going to talk about this forever, and you're going to you're going to shut up, and you're going to listen to me. I'm going to listen to 30 films of yours, so shut up. I think uh, it's like 32. Yeah. Now. So there you go. So be quiet. Um, uh, but, but I'm going to be interesting. Shut up. This is this is one of my favorite things of all time now. Um, okay. So the second one, which is called Evangelion 2.0, you cannot advance. Um, so the first, the, the basic setup of Evangelion is that it takes place in this sort of dystopian post-apocalyptic future where uh, there's a World War Three that was set off by the emergence of these creatures called angels, which periodically <laughs> attack, and these 14-year-old kids have to uh, fight them off. Um, <laughs> shut up! Fuck you! <laughs> have to fight them I'm off. I'm still with you. No, you're not. <laughs> Have to fight them off using these uh, mech suits, or are they mech suits? Um, called yeah, uh, Eva or Evangelions, and um, yeah. So um, the there's like this complicated conspiracy narrative, which uh, doesn't really factor in until later in the series. So I'm not going to get too much into it, but um, so 2.0 is like. But the the whole point of the show is that if the the organization that sort of runs the defense god i hate you so much <laughs> the defense of, of japan it's called nerve and they had this thing uh which if the angels get to will cause the end of the world which is called the third impact right so the whole point is to prevent that um the second movie and this is a spoiler because i wouldn't be good no the the second movie sort okay. of ends with uh gotcha. one of the characters accidentally causing this to happen uh mm-hmm. which is a deviation from the show um in a pretty unexpected and interesting way. Uh, so that movie is way more worthwhile, even if it does suffer from some of the same redundancies of the show. And it doesn't really articulate the themes of the show and the follow-up movie uh, is in as interesting ways, but it, it, the action's really well-directed and I think it, it is worthwhile as a film. It's just not, if you're comparing it to the show itself or to the end of Evangelion, it's just not quite as, as worthwhile. Um, but the third movie, uh, which is called, as I said before, Evangelion 3.0, you cannot redo, just like how we cannot redo this episode, <laughs> um, is a much more interesting film because it basically is a complete deviation from the plot of the series entirely and takes this um, uh, important but um, sort of very brief relationship uh, in, uh, even in, the, in the TV series, which is sort of the basis for... Oh, why so many like um, uh, queer? Why, why the show has so many queer fans, and sort of makes it the the point of the entire uh, movie. And those sequences are really well done, um, and it it is a really interesting film. Um, 
and in, in other ways too. And it does it does a lot better of sort of um, aestheticizing and dramatizing its themes and the emotions of the characters than the other two movies do. Um, and the next one's going to come out next year, so I'm going to talk about them all again when that comes out. <laughs> Are you excited for that? Because they're making even going 4.0. Yeah. That was always the plan. It was to make 4, but the first one came out in like 2006, right? Uh, no, 2007. 2007. Um, and then the second one came out in like 2009. And the third one came out in 2012, I think. It was a pretty like, regular yes. clip. Um, but uh, the man who is responsible for for writing, sort of conceiving and directing a lot of Evangelion is Haida uh, Hiano. Um, is notorious for being someone who suffers from depression. Uh, and he's sort of had this depressive episode which led to the non-completion of the, the final film uh, until next year. Um, mm, okay. And in the meantime, he, he filled his time by directing a, a Godzilla film, which I think I've actually talked about on the show, but maybe not. Shin Godzilla. Which is really good and feels like a mm. if if you <laughs> minus um, the Evangelions from Evangelion and the Angels and then add in uh, a Godzilla and um, the bureaucratic like organizations of Japan instead of 14 year old children <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you get Shin Godzilla which is a really compelling film in its own way. Um, but So I'm going to talk about more about Evangelion in a little bit but I'm going to go through the other films I watched. Um, so I watched this, uh, William Gibson adaptation called Neuros Hotel. Do you, what do you think about William Gibson? Have you read any of his, his books? Nope. Um, I'm, I'm only aware of his reputation. He's a pretty seminal cyberpunk writer, but his films haven't, or, uh, his, oh, I was about to follow that up. So you don't have to be curt with me, you piece of shit. <laughs> um, but a lot of his stories, despite having, uh, sort of a cinematic quality have not been adapted. Uh, into films, and in fact, there's only one other film uh, that's been adapted from a script. Do you know what it is? Stars oh, other Keanu than Hotel, you mean? Yes, it stars Keanu Reeves. Uh, unofficially, The Matrix. No, uh, Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> oh, is that William Gibson? Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm actually reading the short story that's based on right now. I'm sure it's a perfect adaptation, right? Uh. I, I've never watched it, so I can't say one or the other. But um, so the New Rose Hotel are amazing. So New Rose Hotel is is directed by um, uh, Abel Ferreira. Do you have you seen any of his films? I don't think so. It's a pretty like um, not to use the word seminal like twice uh, in the span of a, a single paragraph, but he's a pretty important figure in like the American independent scene. Um, but he's kind of. I've like, always wanted to see Bad Lieutenant, but I never have. Well, this this film made me really interested to watch more of his films. Um, but it has, it's, it's like almost like a perfect distillation of like, uh, Gibson's mood, uh, into a film. Um, so it, it sort of, it, it follows, uh, Christopher Walken and Willem Dafoe as they want to, they try to like set up a Japanese businessman. Uh, he's played by one of the, like one of the main artists behind the Final Fantasy <laughs> video game series, which is kind of really? strange. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's only he, He's the guy who did Chrono Trigger. Maybe as well. No, no, that's a oh, no, that's that a Toriyama who did yeah Dragon Ball and yeah. Uh, so. But uh, no, his name is. Um, let's see. Uh, but if, you know, like the the box art for Final Fantasy that's all has a sort yeah, of yeah, like yeah. ethereal yeah. quality. 
Mm-hmm. Like he's the person who's responsible for all those. Uh, his name is uh, Yoshitaka uh, Amano. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not. He's not. A, he's not really an actor. So it's it's weird to see him in this. Uh, but basically, they're scheming to um, basically poach him for another company, uh, and they do that by getting a prostitute played by Asia Argento to seduce him and you know make him leave his wife and stuff. Um, and it's a really like horny film. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, it has this like sort of great like noir feel to it, um, and both Defoe and and Walken are like great <laughs> in it too. Um, but the the film really it, you know the first like uh, two thirds where they're sort of plotting to um, you know take over or to to execute the scheme are, are pretty well done. But the film really comes mm-hmm. alive for me uh, in the final third where. Um, uh, uh, Defoe's character uh, sort of uh, something happens and then he retreats to like a capsule hotel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest of the film is just basically just him like looking anguished as he remembers parts of the other movie and like just replays these scenes over and over again. It's like legitimately like this great <laughs> like like memory play, and it has this like great like non resolution, which I thought was great. Um, does it actually reuse footage? Yeah, from it does. Wow, um, but it works somehow. I thought it was really. I thought it was really enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it sort of like has like this hazy sort of, you know, memory scape that it's playing towards. Right. And I like slows down footage and, and recontextualize it in the context of like other conversations and stuff like that. Um, and I thought, I thought it was really well done. I've got a title for the essay you're going to write about this film, what? by the way. What is it? Will, William and Abel, or if you prefer, Willie and Abel. Great. Uh, so, <laughs> Uh, I watched um, Olivier Asayas's film Irma Vep. I talk about I think finally. I, I think I talked about uh, Demon Lover. You did. Uh, I've talked about it twice. Have you seen Irma Vep? No. Uh, that's pretty good. You know, uh, it's got Maggie Chung in a pr- in pretty great um, English speaking role. <laughs> um, and the film is sort of this like weird. Um, I don't know. Like half of it is this very sort of like. Uh, I don't know, like deconstruction of the the like mythology of making movies, really. Mm-hmm. It's about this like over the hill, like new wave um, French director who's played by Jean Pierre Lyod from The Four Hundred Blows, um, who has been hired to make this like uh, remake of Les Vampires, which is a uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, he's a really famous uh, French yeah, serial yeah. director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Louis Foulier, mm-hmm. um, and he cast Maggie Chung playing a fictionalized version of herself, uh, as the lead character. Um, and it sort of is, it, it chronicles like the, the behind the scenes of, of trying to make this movie and like the, the day-to-day sort of drudgery of it. And also, um, the realities of, of trying to make like a, a global film in France in the 20th century. Um, I had absolutely no idea that that was what this film was about. <laughs> what did you think it was about? I thought it was like a sort of uh, prestige action no, film starring no, Maggie Chung. not at all. Uh, but there is like one great sequence where the Irma Vep costume is like this uh, really like skin tight, um, uh, like leather, like bondage outfit essentially. Yeah, that's the image that gave me the impression that that's what yeah. the film was about. Um, but there's this, there's just this one scene where... Maggie Chung puts it on and then sort of like becomes the character that she's been playing off and on. Right. And it sort of, it, it makes the film more about like the, you know, the, 
the membrane between the between art and, and reality and, and sort of the way fiction can influence, you know, mm-hmm. the way people act in real life. Um, but it has this just great, like, I don't know, like, um, joy of, like, uh, uh, expression and, and freedom because this, like, great Sonic Youth song starts playing. Uh, it's, it's good stuff. It's almost like, I mean, the film is cool like... Cool thing? Huh? No, it's called... Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, tunic song for Karen. It's a good song. Mm. Yeah, you just fucking dis- disarmed your jokey piece of shit. Um, but uh, dun, dun, blah, 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 blah. yeah, great. Um, so Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really it's a really interesting film. Um, and I think I think Maggie Chung and all the actors are really really compelling in it. Um, and I I find the like Hong Kong uh, English accent to be really interesting. <laughs> Because it does feel like the halfway point between like British and like Chinese, you know. Um, it does. Yeah, it's, at least Maggie Chung's does. <laughs> um, and she's really good. So, uh, and then I watched the fourth annual Vlad <laughs> Cinema Oscar special. <laughs> no, I won't talk about that. You, I'll respect your wishes this time. Sweet. Um, uh, I watched that documentary. You should five. watch. You should see clips of uh, Samuel Hung on the short-lived television no. show. Uh, so Law. I watched um, One Child Nation, which is a documentary film about um, uh, child, uh, ch- child, uh, China's Chow Yun Fat. Yeah, it's about Chow Yun Fat. No, it's about uh, China's. You know, um, one child one policy. China, yeah, one child policy and sort of the way that it was implemented and sort of the uh, unintended consequences that it had. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a, I don't know, I feel like it's it sort of, um, the way it's framed I thought was pretty uninteresting where it's like, this the woman who made it is like, I'm having my first child and it made me reflect oh, on right. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, see. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, do, it does get some really interesting places. Probably the most compelling part is a, it like sort of turns aside to the, the weird sort of like shadow economy that developed around like um getting orphans to people and like the the like baby smugglers who would take unwanted children and like send them to to orphans and like get paid for it essentially and i i really like this sort of dealing with the economic realities of that uh, and i do think there's a it, it does portray the sort of like physical effects and like the 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 remnants of of uh propaganda on both like the the psyche of the the people who like lived through like that mm. era and also the physical environment around it. It makes things sort of, sort of interesting double feature with the, the farewell, which is also sort of about like, you know, the way, um, the Chinese cities like, uh, you know, embody, um, personal and, and cultural memory. Um, but there is some like sort of clunky bits in it. Like I said, <laughs> about mm. her just being like, well, what did my what what must have been like to be my mother when she was had the decision to and I was just like I don't care, um, I mean, I I can understand why she, you know, like strategizes it like that, you know, but I just found it to be like pretty off putting just in a kind of because it's such a generic sort of way at this point to make you bring you into the film, you know. Uh, anyway, so. Um, Previous to watching The Virgin Suicides, I watched Sofia Coppola's short film Lick the Star, uh, which I thought was it was just fine. Um, it's just sort of about this group of girls who plan to poison all the the people in their grade by poisoning their like sandwiches essentially. 
Um, mm-hmm. It has some like interesting like you know observational stuff about uh, teenage girls, but uh, you know it's just sort of I don't know. It just feels sort of dashed off in some ways. It has a shock, bizarre like one scene cameo by Peter Bogdanovich, <laughs> <laughs> which apparently I guess I guess there must be some psychic link between me watching this because he apparently also has a cameo in It Chapter Two. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what's up with that. Um, I think it's even more obnoxious than uh, obviously all the stars in The Virgin Suicide because that yeah. still was a production that was a, a proper released yeah. debut film, right? And it's not, I think it's, it's not pretty obnoxious like that many... to get Peter Bogdanovich yeah. in, it was just, in it's a so shitty little short film. It definitely feels more like, um, you know, oh, using daddy's connections to make my, my film mm. than anything in The Virgin Suicides does. But I, I, I would definitely recommend watching The Virgin Suicides. It's like legitimately great. And Kristen Dunst is like amazing at it, too. Um, I'm a fan of the Dunst. Do you, do you, you said you haven't seen any of Sophia Coppola's films, right? No, I don't think I've actually seen any of her films. She's, she's, I, I really like her a lot. I was put off mostly by Lost in Translation. That did not sound you haven't seen good it, have to you? <laughs> no. But, uh, you should, I was put off by the idea of it. Yeah, I can, I can see that. But um, you should see uh, this. And I really like the Bling Ring, too. Uh, I thought the Bagarad was just okay. Do you like Lost in Translation? I've never seen it. Oh, okay. So that would be a blind spot for me. But I've heard like Somewhere is really good and so is Marie Antoinette. So I'm going to watch those and report back. My only exposure to Sophia Coppola is The Godfather Part 3. Mm. I guess. I've never seen that. Um, but I don't know, I've never seen Part 2, I don't think. No, you haven't because I remember from an IMDb special. Oh, yes. Um... But I am going to see that Francis Ford Coppola in person next weekend. Are you really? Yeah. Because uh, Doing what? I don't know if you know this, Hugh, but the New York Film Festival is currently uh, happening in New York. Wow. Uh, and as part of that, um, uh, Coppola recently edited together a uh, director's cut of his film, The Cotton Club. Ah, uh, yes, I heard about that. Um, and it is getting premiered here, and I thought that would be a interesting thing to see as opposed to any of the films that are actually in competition. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I, I've liked the couple of films that I've seen. I really like Apocalypse Now, especially. Which um, version? Uh, the regular one. I've never seen Redux. The regular one is the, probably the best. Well, Redux is not you know he just put out a new cut of it, right? I do know. Maybe we should do that at some point. I'd be interested to watch that. I've, I think I've seen it too much in my life, to be honest. Um, but I think that's a really well-done film. Um, and I, I I, feel like because in so many like traditional like accountings for Hollywood New Wave and New Hollywood, um, sort of the Coppola's like 80 years are, are dismissed, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, do, I, th- I, I am interested to go back and see these films, which are sort of disparaged by, you know, the, the mainstream critical apparatus. Um, I do like Rumblefish a lot. Yeah, me too. I actually saw it in Germany. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's a, re- that's a really good film. Um, and it made me interested to see, you know, other, other films of his from this era. And the Cotton Club has been sort of maligned, but I, I am really curious to see, you know what his like restored vision is like, you know? And, uh, and there's also going to be a Q and a with him. So I'll see that. Hmm. Um, so let's see. Have you got some questions prepared? <laughs> yeah. On I'm behalf gonna, of the podcast, I'm you go, gonna, Hey, this is Hunter Sawyer, project eight plus. Yeah. I'm going to say that. 
I'm going to ask him about Megalopolis. Yeah. Um, and Jack. Yeah. <laughs> His best film. <laughs> but I, I, I like that. Basically, he's become like a... He could do whatever he wants because of his wine. I think that's such a weird term <laughs> to go, you know? Um, and yeah, he seems to still struggle to get his films made to some yeah, degree. I don't, I don't know if he does. I feel like, I mean, I feel like he could probably get anything he wanted to. I just feel like he... I mean, they feel very, like, dependent on European money. Yeah, but so, so do, like, most, like, you know, older... I feel like any yeah. non, like, big release sort of is dependent on that, or Chinese money now. Yeah. So, you know, but, um, so I watched one more movie and I saw this one in a theater, which is, I saw a new 4k restoration of uh, perennial favorite blue velvet, uh, which is, you know, I think I've, I think I may have talked about it on the show already, but yeah. great film. Um, I, this is not the best screening experience because for whatever reason, the, uh, people in my audience were super annoying <laughs> mm. in that they spent the entire movie laughing <laughs> For reasons that I, I'm just like not sure of, like the the mm-hmm. one that I thought uh, thought was suspicious, uh, especially suspicious, was during the you know the, the rape scene. Uh, oh. They they laughed after it for some reason, but that was just like really distressing. And yeah, um, there's one guy kept on making like annoying like commentary joke things, which I thought was terrible. I was just like, oh god, why? really? Yeah, I was like, why why are you coming to this, like? I, I just don't understand why people go to movies that are like, you know, you're going to see a restoration of something. Shouldn't you have like some appreciation for what you're going to go see? Not that I'm like, oh, you should have the same response or not that you need to like, you know, respect the film or anything like that. But like, just shut the fuck up. Like, yeah, that's what happened to me with the screening of the 70 millimeter restoration of 2001. There was just this young couple in front of me talking to each other the whole time. That's so I annoying. Hate, I, I hate going to see movies. Uh, okay, so I watched one other film, Hugh. My God. Uh, which is uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, the end of Evangelion. <laughs> in fact, you watched it fucking twice. Yeah, the twice in the span of a week. I think I'm going to watch it again this weekend. Um, but, Hugh, I think, uh, I'm all joking aside, this is one of the most moving and inspiring and, I don't know, meaningful films I've seen in my entire life. <laughs> And I really think it's it's a masterpiece. I can definitely see this going down as like just one of my favorite films, um, given time. Um, but uh, to just give a little context to it, so uh, the series of Evangelion ended um, with sort of a controversial uh, two-part episode, which um, where they sort of had to throw out the original scripts uh, in order to make because they ran out of money, and they make this sort of abstract. Yeah, I remember all that. Like. Um, I don't know. I, I find the indie of the show to be really compelling and moving in its own right, but it, it, it basically like breaks down the show into this like abstract imagery and like it basically just becomes a therapy session, <laughs> essentially. Mm. Um, which the indie of Evangelion does too, to some extent, but instead of like um, I don't know, like directly sort of uh, using that trope, it, it dramatizes it and uh, aestheticizes it as well. Um, What's the little twerp's name again? <laughs> Shinji Ikari. Hmm, Shinji. Shinji. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, but the, this film is just, it's just so well done. Um, and it just makes, I don't know, like there's just so many great moments that are just uh, indelibly linked to mind. Like there's this great sequence where, where a character who's like been, basically been rendered comatose by her mental illness, like it, 
like sort of discovers like a reason to live and like like pushes back against her own fate and then like is immediately struck down too and it's just like heartbreaking and, and moving all at the same time and I just thought it was I don't know I just think this film was like wait what so what's the reason to live asking for a friend <laughs> you'll, you'll find out you'll find out uh, you have to find your own on you I'm sorry damn <laughs> um, but it, it's just uh, it's just such a well made film and it, it pushes like this uh, experimental tendency that's in the film to like this breaking point by you know like, breaking down the very like um, film point film form itself into <laughs> shut up uh it, it 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 draws from like brackage and and i don't know it even incorporates like live action footage in order to like um fully externalize uh, its characters like mental struggle which i thought was just, mm-hmm. just great it's just a great film i i really really think it's commendable and and and, and brilliantly made and i i love it so Cool. And it, it's probably the film that inspired me to go to therapy. So, wow. <laughs> it's important for um, paracinematic reasons. But as just taken on aesthetic terms, it's garbage. No, set up. You have to. Okay. You have to watch it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna live stream myself eating Vegemite, and then you're gonna have to watch it. And I'm gonna feel good. That's true. It's the deal. So, um, all right, yeah, that's it. My God. <laughs> Yep, okay, go ahead. Go fast. <laughs> oh, you took forever, so I can take forever. <laughs> you can take as long as I did. Which was forever. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, that's a different segment. Okay, so first off, I saw some films as part of a series on Elaine May that was being screened here. Previously, I hadn't seen any of her films in cinemas, so this is the first time I had an opportunity to do so. And if you know anything about Elaine May, you know that a series on Elaine May films only spans four films. And I watched them all. Um, so I've talked about The New Leaf before. It's one of my favourite films. And it's probably my favourite of hers, which makes sense, given it's one of my favourite films. And it's still great, and it was actually really good to see with an audience. The other film I got to watch, and this is a difficult film to track down, so I was very looking forward to seeing it, which, which is The Heartbreak Kid, yes, from 1972. A screenplay from uh, Neil Simon... So this was more of a director for hire job for Elaine May, but she does a great job with it. Now, we're both huge fans of Charles Grodin, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. And this is essential... Primarily from which role of his. This is essential viewing for Charles Grodin fans. He puts in an amazing performance at the centre of this film. I honestly don't want to spoil it too much for you. I'm sure you can track it down some way. Um, but it's savage and hilarious and it has one of the funniest scenes I think I've seen. So, I actually think I saw a, a version of it on YouTube with Ben Stiller. No, no, the uh, like the original version. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I definitely recommend watching it. It's great. I've talked about Mikey and Nikki before, and finally I watched uh, Ishtar as well. What do you think which, about that one? Whose reputation obviously precedes it. Look, it's easily the least distinguished of May's films, but it is surprisingly fun, even if neither Beatty nor Hoffman work that well in their characters. So there's, they play a team of songwriters and the joke music um, that was composed by Paul Williams and Elaine May herself is great and there are a lot of genuine laughs in the, films, in the film. Um, and the casually negative portrayal of the CIA and US foreign, US, foreign, US foreign, policy. foreign policy is surprising for this type of studio comedy, I think. Um, although some aspects of the film's fictional Middle Eastern setting have not aged that well. 
perhaps. Um, but I, th- I think it's, it's actually watchable and quite enjoyable. I watched Falling in Love, which is a mm. Netflix original romantic comedy thingamajig. Uh, Christina Mil- Million is solid. Million? Million, yeah. Christina Million is solid as the star, but her New Zealand love interest, played by non-New Zealand Australian Adam Demos, I just, I just want to point out, is a total stiff. I, I never, I never, I never, I never get angry at you for listing off millions of romantic Yes, you do. You like. like, there's been episodes where you yawn throughout my entire bonus features section. That was the, a bit that you started. Hmm. And you often say, um, time, keep going, keep going, you know. You always get angry at me through bonus features. It's like your thing. It's your one personality trait. <laughs> more, more than I can say and about I, you. Literally, that was the one sentence I had to say about falling in love. <laughs> so deal with it, fucker. I'm not going to talk Who's about Evangelion forever. <laughs> uh, the I audience also, love it. The audience also loves watched it a little film called... The Lost City of Zed, mm. which I lined up originally on your own recommendation, sir. Mm. But the first time I tried to watch it, I gave up after about five minutes, and I only bothered to finish it after we decided to feature Ad Astra on this podcast, just to give me some context, some James Gray context. Um, so having seen the whole film, I have to say my initial impression wasn't that far off the mark. The production values were cinema-worthy, but it really felt like it belonged on television. I didn't think Charlie Hunnam was especially good in it, and his attempts to do that sort of imperial British accent were annoying. He does that thing that people who who don't have that natural accent do, where you just try and over-aspirate everything you say to obscure the limitations of your accent. He is British, but he's obviously... He's putting on a certain type of British accent in this film. So you get this, I'm British. See how aspirated that is? Sort of similar to what Chris Hemsworth does for Thor and that type of thing. I also didn't think this film's attempts to grapple with its colonial perspective were especially successful, a bit clumsy. But anyway, what, why do you like this film so much? Um... Well, I, I disagree with you about the things that you just said, so... Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> Fair enough. Moving on. <laughs> uh, I watched the film Twisted Pear mm. from a certain director that you introduced not, me to. When and, you're we're not in talking, and you're not talking about your nutsack. No. That is the joke made. I'm, I'm sure you'll be pleased to discover... By the person who introduced this film via a PowerPoint. Wow. Great. That sounds insufferable. Indeed. So, yeah, this was this was not like an official cinema screening of this film. Who, who film... Who was the um, person who made this film? You, you said that a filmmaker that I introduced you to that he never actually said that. Ah, uh, yeah. Neil Breen. Who belongs in the same category of, of Tommy Wiseau, who, make, who sort of self... Who bankrolls his own films that everyone laughs at i feel like his uh his film um what is it called uh fist of fate finger fate finger fateful no. findings no people findings people findings 
was an instrumental uh, in our early history together. Mm. So, yeah, I saw this in a screening room at the back of a bar um, that was booked by friends of my brother's or acquaintances or something. And, yeah, some, some dude introduced it with a PowerPoint, made the same twisted pear testicle joke. And during the well, screening... We sound like one of the greats. Yeah, during the screening, several members of the audience thought that constant quipping mystery science theatre style would enrich the experience, just like something that, that you went through with Blue Velvet. And they were wrong. There's nothing I really need to say about this film. It's just a Neil Breen film. It's not as enjoyable as Faithful Findings, but it does have a, a great and timely sexual assault joke. <laughs> what, is, what is this good as Faithful Findings? I really want to watch. There's there's a film of his that was featured on the Flop House podcast that I want to see. I can't remember what it's called. A pass through, I think. Mm. Which basically ends with the genocide of humanity. Yeah, yeah, they, they, that was mentioned in the PowerPoint. Oh, which sounds sounds appealing. It to does me. sound good. I do. Yeah, I we do, should I, do. We should do a Neil Breen series. No, I do have some discomfort about. Even though he doesn't seem like a particularly good person or anything. No, in fact, it seems like you might be a little bit of a fascist. But I do have some discomfort about just, like, completely mocking someone's earnest artistic endeavours, nah. to be honest. Oh, sorry, you. Uh, then I, I watched a whole bunch of uh, Tarantino films that I hadn't seen and also some that I had already seen <laughs> um, in order to write some piece of shit thing for a job application. Do we, do we want to relegate Tarantino now or? No, not really. We've talked about him so much on the show already. But I'm going to talk about the ones that I hadn't seen before. So I'd seen Kill Bill Volume it. One, but I hadn't seen mm. Volume Two because I hated Kill Bill Volume One. And now, and, but wait, can I can I guess what you think about Kill Bill Volume Two? Yes, all right. Okay, it's your favorite film. Yes, yeah, my favorite film of all time. Wow. What a turnaround. I can't believe you knocked it out of the party. You hate the... Fr- that's just so... So weird, It's almost it? sad. It's, yeah. almost, it's almost sad. It's very sad. Uh, yeah, I think I think now, as a pair, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 represent Tarantino. It is absolute nadir, and I hate it every second. Mm. Um, I actually didn't mind Django Unchained too much. Um, mm. Sort of frustratingly, I found it quite entertaining for the first two-thirds or so, and then it sort of dives off the rails in time for Tarantino to unleash his Australian accent. <laughs> Damn <laughs> that, was, that was great, though, right? Mm. Uh, I watched Road Games. I wanted to see that, actually. One of Tarantino's favourite Australian films. That's like that trucker one, right? Yeah, it's basically real rear window on wheels. Mm. With uh, Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> That's it's so funny that Stacey Keach is it set in Australia? Yeah. Do they do Australian accents? No, no, they're both no. American in it. They even barely explain if they are American. And when he picks up Jamie Lee Curtis as a hitchhiker, they don't go, "Oh, you're American too," or anything. They just interact normally. It's kind of weird. But anyway, that is a little strange. It does have some some well staged suspense sequences. Uh, you know, it's sort of like subpar De Palma, really. <laughs> yeah, I feel like everyone besides De Palma is subpar De Palma. I think Stacey Keach is decent as the lead. Jamie Lee Curtis is good, but she disappears from the narrative prematurely, and the climax is a bit of a fizzle, but it's enjoyable. I rewatched Muriel's Wedding, which I'd only watched as a kid, which is sort of solid 90s Australian dramedy from 
PJ Hogan, who later made My Best Friend's Wedding. And it features star-making turns from Tony Collette and Rachel Griffiths. And it's really the proper ABBA movie, ABBA movie that Mamma Mia isn't, even though I also like Mamma Mia. But yes. Is Tony Collette Australian? Wow. Yeah, baby. Weird. She doesn't really get an American accent, though. Did you actually not know that she was Australian? No. I really she, didn't. She even looks like my family. Wow. Weirdly enough. Yeah, now that I'm looking at her, she does look, she does look Australian. She has those Australian teeth. Um, but, no, I mean, she did, like, I... I, I mean, oh, yeah, she does know, a good American movies. accent, yeah. Yeah, like in Hereditary and Velvet Buzzsaw. This is, like, the only... I mean, I haven't really seen her in that much. I don't think but. you would... Yeah, I don't think you would suspect that she's Australian if you'd only seen her in American roles. Yeah, um, which I have. I watched Moonstruck. Mm, the 1987 film. share vehicle. Uh, uh, um, sorry, Nicholas Cage, one of his best performances. Yeah, a romantic comedy with Cher and Nicholas Cage should up, add up to more than this, I think, but it does have its charms. So Cage is in full out sabotage mode. <laughs> I think I think Nicholas Cage is basically perfect. <laughs> He's great. Portraying a <laughs> lunatic one-handed baker. <laughs> I just, I wonder, I, I, I can't, do you think that's how the character was written in the screenplay? It doesn't make any sense because, like, it, it, it basically... It's such, a, it's such a weird element in the film. You're just, like, watching it, and it's like, you're like, who's she going to follow it up with? Oh, this crazy person yeah. who's one hand, who's a pizza maker? <laughs> And it's so like it just seems like such like free association. It know? doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense because the, and it's the, and it even relates to the central conflict that uh, um, Nicholas Cage has with his brother, who is engaged to share. He blames his brother for losing his hand just because of the fact that his brother happened to be talking to him when he accidentally lost his hand or something. Like it doesn't make any sense <laughs> that you would hold a grudge for that reason. But but. You know, you have to commend the film for portraying... Most most times when um, people with physical disabilities are put in films, they're often the betas. Um, but in this in this one, uh, Nicholas Cage is definitely the, the alpha, the chad of the, of the film. Mm. So, he cuckolds his brother, yeah. Yeah. Um, there, isn't, there isn't a hint of a spark between Cher and Nicholas Cage, <laughs> or indeed any credible reason why she would willingly enter a relationship with him. <laughs> I mean, um, especially being currently uh, engaged to his brother, but yeah, wouldn't which you? is what this, the he's, film he's sort of hinges around. That, he's that isn't, isn't that the isn't that the the, the point of it? His isn't brother, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, what's his name? I don't think he's impotent. No, he's just the boring I, choice. I just, I just uh, assumed that was the. He's the, the what's the word again? The I saw that when I was like sixteen. And I like in the end they try and make him like okay with the fact that uh, she's now gone off with his brother. Danny Aiello, that's who it is. He's a, he's a good actor. He is. Uh, then I watched Edge of Darkness. Well, the why? 2010, because I loved the series so much that I wanted to see what would happen. God. Half a star, bro. Um, so it was directed by Martin Campbell. Your favorite director directed the original series, and I think this is an act of cinematic vandalism. <laughs> wow, it's rare that you see uh, someone get to make a, you know, 
film version of, of their own series and, and fuck it up this badly. Well, it's not really his series because like, I guess if that's he, true. the television model, especially in England, was the writer was king, really. Yeah, yeah. But did the same person who wrote the series write the, the movie? No, absolutely not. Okay. So that was Troy Kennedy something or other wrote the series. Um, and they even had conflicts, I think, on the set originally uh, about the creative direction of the show. So it's even it's even less justified that you go off and make this because it's really it's the writer's show, but it is one of the greatest miniseries in television history, I believe, and, and this film is an absolute disgrace. Yeah, and the way they just turn the climax into a gunfight is is just astonishingly awful. Anyway, I watched Under the Cherry Moon again. Mm, one of your favorite films, the Prince directorial classic. It was released on my year of birth. And it's perfect. There's nothing else to say about it. It's perfect. I watched The Rewrite, directed by Mark Lawrence, one of Tarantino's favourite directors, apparently. <laughs> why, why are you doing this? <laughs> um, the Tarantino links aren't intentional with The Rewrite and... Uh, Road Games. No, Road Games was actually, but the rewrite one wasn't. When Tarantino mentioned uh, Road Games somewhere, I looked to see if it was available, and it was, so I watched it. Mm. So that was his fault. Wow, this this dude has worked with Hugh Grant so many times. He has, yes. So, but the reason I watched the rewrite is I was hoping this film would be as good as one of the other Mark Lawrence, uh, Hugh Grant romantic comedies, Music and Lyrics, mm. which I really like. Um, and this is nowhere near as good. I kind of like how brazenly immoral Hugh Grant is in this film, because um, that kind of fits in with what Hugh Grant does well on screen. But the narrative strains to wipe his sins clean by the end, so it's mm. kind of it's kind of a bit of a shitty film. Uh, I watched Social Animals, featuring Josh Radnor. Why did you watch all this garbage? Featuring Josh Radner, and you asked me why I watched it. Featuring... Hey, please, what is Social Animals? We both know what it is. We've looked it up before and talked about it. I don't, I don't know what it is. When we were just, like, searching for <laughs> Josh Radner stuff. Is, it, is, is he, like, a porn shop? Am I, am I thinking of a different movie? Is it the one where he runs a porn shop? He runs a video shop. He doesn't run a porn shop. Something. What? A video store. What am I thinking of, then? Wait, I'm going to do some Googling. What's... Yeah, you keep it, keep it This is Josh Radnor and uh, Noel Wells, and it's a ho- one of those horrible indie dramedy pieces of shit. And he owns a video show, and ugh, it's awful. It's just awful. It's awful. Uh, I watched Josie and the Pussycats, which is fun. Enough, I guess. I watched Shame. Deborah Lee Finesse, which is a rather uh, brutal I was, story. I was thinking of, uh, I was thinking of um, a film called Good Dick, starring Jason Ritter. Ah, okay. All right, whatever. I watched Shane. <laughs> wow. wow, so dismissive. I watched Shane, which you. is an Australian film from 1988. Uh, why did you watch that? I've always been moderately interested in, in watching it. I've heard about it. Is it directed by anyone notable? 
No, it's really not. Steve Jodrell, who's mostly known for television. Mm. Um, What's it about? So it was originally conceived, uh, I believe, by Beverly Blankenship as a sort of uh, response to Mad Max, but using a, a female heroine. Mm. Mad Maxine. And it sort of plays like a Mad Max Western type thing, but unfortunately the mm. rather brutal story could have done with a little bit more pulp and a little bit less after-school special, I think. <laughs> I think that yeah. Steve Jodrell's... That, that's a classic line right there. Steve Jodrell's direction does does betray his roots in television. But it is worth a look. It does have some good things about it, I think. Um, but yeah, maybe I would have liked to see another director handle it. I watched uh, Wake in Fright, which I believe you've seen as well, yeah? I have. But I remember I uh, liked it quite a bit. It is good. It's like Australian grotesque. Yeah. And the guy who directed it has had the most bizarre film career. Yeah, he made Weekend of Bernie's. Yeah, and Rambo. <laughs> and Rambo, First Blood, which people like. Yeah. So. yeah. Not so much Weekend of Bernie's. But yeah. he has a bizarre, yeah, he has a bizarre career. Um, but the way this film generates its horrific atmosphere out of these uh, Australian yeah. archetypes is masterful, I think. Even if the film itself is not perfect. The atmosphere is really good. I like the way it generates this horror feeling without actually using any explicit horror elements. Mm. It's just like this feeling of grotesque dread or something. It's good. Good stuff. Then I watched the entire Mad Max franchise. <laughs> Why? So this isn't... So the, the, the amount of films that I've watched over the past few weeks is not a good sign for my personal well-being. Just putting it out there. Um, so, <laughs> Should I call the police to do a wellness no, no, check? No, not yet. Not, not yet. Um, but um, I watched the entire Mad Max franchise. I think the first Mad Max uh, still kind of holds up. It retains yeah. that exploitative some, kick. It's some grungy, grungy charm, for sure. Yeah. And I think there's even some raw brutality that's quite effective amid the goofiness. Mm, like the, the, I remember the last scene being especially brutal. Yeah. He's just like, okay, you can cut your own arms off if you want. And it never quite uh, recaptured that in any of the subsequent films to that to that degree, I think. Um, so that's worth a look. But I think Mad Max 2 is actually the pinnacle of the franchise. Every subsequent film kind of takes its cues from this and basically tells a version of the same story, uh, even if they diverge here and there. Basically, it's basically a Western story, you know. Yeah, but it's always about... Mad Max, you know, yeah, going uh, to being, a community, realizing that wandering into a community individualistically, and then yeah, and then reluctantly helping them out, and yeah. then leaving at the end. Yeah, just like a western. Yeah, uh, exactly. I'm, I, I regret to say that one of Ted uh, Kotcheff's last films was a uh, Red Shoe Diaries, um, which is what the Red Shoe Diaries. Hmm. What's that? Uh, it's it was David Duchovny's um, role before the X Files. It's an erotic sort of uh, TV movie series. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, you, you don't know about this? He no. plays like a radio host in the frame segment who like gets these letters that are about sex uh, and like reads these stories. I, I've only seen like a couple episodes, but basically the, the what I remember the what I remember is just him like wandering around like and looking at trains and stuff while like thinking about these sex stories as they play out, you know, in full time. Mm. <laughs> it's it's uh it's pretty funny. He's it's like a it's like he's like uh the hustler magazine like letter answerer or something like that. 
Mm. Yeah. Great stuff, though. That's that's sort of where you got to start from. <laughs> wow. That in, that in Twin Peaks. Yeah, so Mad Max 2, I think, is probably the best synthesis of what George Miller was trying to do. Mm. Um, and it's kind of fascinating the way that it, it like, cherry-picks existing elements from genres, especially Westerns and stuff, but really codifies them as something completely new, especially in Mad Max 2, that has mm. been infinitely um, imitated since. Yeah, for sure. I think that's fascinating and commendable. Uh, Mad Max 3, Beyond Thunderdome. The Thunderdome stuff with Tina Turner is pretty great and pretty enjoyable, mm. but the Lost Boys nonsense that uh, comprises <laughs> the... the Last half of the film is a snooze. I haven't seen that one. And then I finally rewatched. Or two, actually. Uh, I've only seen the first and. Uh... I finally rewatched Mad Max Fury Road. Mm. After being very impressed in the cinema. And I uh, actually found it not as good on a second viewing on a smaller screen. That's a shame. Um, a lot of its uh, failings sort of stood out because I kind of knew what to expect with the action scenes this time around. Right. So I was less willing to overlook some of the other bits of it. I must say, mm. like, the everyone talks about how great the Furiosa stuff is and how great Charlize Theron is. Yeah. But she's do. so boring in this film. Her character doesn't get any, really anything to do except be boring. Um, which, I mean, like, honestly, in Mad Max films... There's no real internal life in the characters. They're just they're like archetypes. So it really is yeah. down to the performance. And Mad and yeah. Mel Gibson, as horrible as he is, is very good as that Mad Max figure. I don't yeah. think Tom Hardy's as good, although it's not a bad approximation. I, I do think they're both sort of good, like you know, existential actors. You know. Mm. But yeah, I don't think the Furiosa stuff works very well at all, really. I do think I do think Tom Hardy's a bit too mumbly and like muttery and well, so is Mel Gibson to some extent. Yeah, but I I think I mean you know I've only seen the first one, so I can't really compare it to him in in um, uh, the Road Warrior or uh, Thunderdome. But I I just feel like Matt, um, Tom Hardy was like a little too like great. I'm crazy mm. and, and Fury Road for it to be like truly effective. I, I always thought that film was like good, but a little overrated. So. Glad to see you vindicate my uh, my opinion, because that's that's like one of those rare films that's basically achieved like universal praise. You know, I think the main thing is like no one had any expectation that it would that it could, that it could be as good as it was. Mm. So it was so refreshing on that basis. And to be fair, there are moments of action that are like all time greats of cinema. Really, yeah, yeah. There's definitely some of the sequences that are just such. Um, you know, uh, achievements of composition, but yeah, it's not, it doesn't really find a basis in, in character or no. Yeah, I don't think there's a, there's much. It doesn't need like Mad Max doesn't need much of a story. Like Mad Max Two is no. not much of a story, but you kind of need something. You just need that some like, memorable <laughs> through line, you know? Yeah. Right. And like, I mean, I guess there's like sort of that with like oh the water, but it's like that that, that who cares honestly. And, and, like, the feminist stuff is undercut a little bit by, like, the harem of models and the way they're, they're shot at times and kind of how bland they are. You're just, you're just, uh, you just can't enjoy the, the female form, you know. 
Um, and, and also the digital stuff annoyed me. Like the extreme color grading does not, has not aged very well. Mm. And the overuse of the high shutter speed stuff got annoying, I think. Mm. Well, you know. But yeah, so it's still good, but. Maybe a little overrated. A little overrated, yeah. Speaking so of which, you watch? speaking of which, I watched There Will Be Blood. Have you ever seen that? No, I, I really like P.T. Anderson, but uh, he's kind of like Tarantino, where I kind of only like his like later day films and mm. not interested in his previous ones. Like I don't really like like Boogie Nights is like I feel like it's good, but I don't really have a lot of like personal affection for it. You know, you mm. know, one of those films that you watch and you're like, this is well made, but I'm not really. I don't yeah. know. There's like sequences in it that I really like, but. It's not a film that really is like stuck with me that much, and I don't really like Magnolia. I guess I like Punch Drunk Love a lot. Magnolia is um, terrible. I I, but, I liked uh, Punch Drunk Love when I saw it in cinemas. I've never I've never seen the really one. I don't really have much. It doesn't really interest me that much, but I really like his last three features. I just find so to be so like great mm. that I'll, I'll definitely watch it at some point. But I it's not like a film that I'm like, you know, it doesn't really. I'm not that excited to see it. I guess is what I'll say. He's definitely shown development. Mm. Um. I guess I kind of disagree in principle with using the term overrated, but uh, I certainly feel like using it in regards to There Will Be Blood. Mm. To its credit, it does have fantastic cinematography and uh, I feel like compelling. All have, though. Yeah, a compelling, if overcooked, central performance by Daniel Day Lewis. Mm. But it seems to be building towards something, and you're kind of happy the, to go the along. The overcooker it. himself. Hmm. <laughs> It seems to be, like the film feels like it seems to be building towards something. Like you've got all mm. these elements assembled um, and this central character and whatever. And sure, sure. we're going to follow him through his capitalism journey, capitalistic journey. But the, yeah. the climax feels like Anderson is floundering for a way to pull it all together. And it comes across like a confused joke. I mean, he's he's never without a sense of humor. Like he does intend some of it to be funny. That's. I think. I think we can both agree that our our favorite of his films is Inherent Bias, right? Probably, yeah. It's, it's probably his most explicitly like comedic film. Yeah. So, like, I think obviously some of that milk sh- the famous milkshake scene is supposed to register as funny, but I don't think the yeah. entire scene is meant to be a joke. I think he's mm. he's trying to encapsulate the themes of the film in it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Or if it was intended to be entirely a joke, it's not a very good joke. I think another problem with the film is Paul Dano, mm. who was like a last-minute substitution. For whom? Uh, I forgot the guy who he was replacing, but Paul Dano was in it as the brother of the guy, the priest. Oh, and then he, yeah, he played the, the, the... They made him like twins or whatever, right? Also, I don't think Paul Dano as an actor was quite equipped to provide the sort of opposing gravity to Daniel Day-Lewis's performance that the film seems to have been mm. designed around. So, yeah, kind of disappointing. Uh, I watched uh, an Australian film called My Brilliant Career from 1979. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Cartoon just put that out. Uh, it's, it's maybe a little bit slight in the Australian middle-brow tradition. But I like it quite a bit, actually. And I think Judy Davis carries the film. Judy, Judy, Judy. And Sam Neill's also in it. On in an New Zealand's own. 
and uh, God help me, I this watched. Is, but this is the one I'm, I'm uh, most. This is this is actually one where I will get this in your uh, your um, uh, letterbox, and I'm actually uh, somewhat concerned about your mental state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God help me, I watched Between Two Ferns the movie. Why did you watch that? Not that I was especially fond of the Between Two Ferns web episode things. I feel but... like that's just something I watched, and I was like you know, 15 and I like, they're okay. Time, but I don't care. I mean, I like Scott, I obviously like Scott Ackerman quite a bit. Honestly, that's the only reason I watched the film is because Scott Ackerman directed I feel, it. I feel like his, his medium is not film. It is not. And this is evidence of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, go on. There is exactly zero comic mileage in anything outside of the interviews, mm. which are mm. themselves kind of uneven. Hmm. It's just pretty dire and nothing, really. Not recommended. Well, I'm not going to watch it. So. Uh, nearly there. Nearly there. Four more to go. <laughs> I watched Good Time. Uh-huh. In anticipation of Uncut Gems. I, I, I do want to see Uncut Gems, yeah. I don't know when that comes out or if it comes out here. But... Uh, it's supposed to come out in America in December, so we'll see. So it's a film by the uh, Safdie brothers. Yes. Um, it's entertaining enough. I quite like Robert Pattinson's performance, but I think it really strains to be taken seriously. And the core of the film is is pretty hollow, I think. So. I've always been. I'm, I'm interested to see your sort of mixed uh, review because, like, I like in the circles that I travel in, it, it gets a. Uh, a lot of praise, and I've always yeah. I noticed it. a lot of uh, r- reviews about it that were very positive, but I think it's overrated. If I can deploy that word again, mm. it has this really dumb, like, sub Tarantino bit where this low grade criminal like recounts a, a colorful story and it shows mm. the story as it's happening. It just, it's just you know, very good. That sounds anyway. like a sequence in my and shoot the piano player, Francois Truffaut's second film. One of Bob Dylan's favorite films. Not a bad film. It definitely feels like an early Godard feature, though. Mm. I'd like to really there's watch one, that. There's, there's one great scene where um, one some criminal is like, I swear in my mother's grave, right? Mm. And then it immediately cuts to his mother like falling over and dying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really funny. I think I remember that, actually. It's a good film. Uh, anyway. Uh, I watched The Cremator. Mm. Yeah, I don't know what that is. It's a Czech New Wave film. Oh, you know what? That actually was playing at a, a art house theater here. Oh, you should definitely watch that if it's still playing. Oh, no, it, it left a while ago. Okay. Um, so it's by Jiraz Hers, if that's how you pronounce it. And it was banned for 20 years until the mm. communist government was overthrown. The communist system was overthrown. Um... It was released, I think, very briefly and then immediately banned. Mm. And it's this sort of hallucinatory, macabre, macabre masterpiece, mm. I think, about the Holocaust. Oh, my favourite thing. Told from the perspective of a cremator with a Hitler haircut. <laughs> uh-huh. And it, the film kind of unfolds as if we're trapped inside the cremator's head, listening to his weird internal monologue. And the way it fractures time and space kind of anticipates 
Nicholas Rogue. Mm. Although I think here the transitions are, are more ingenious and therefore more mm. disorienting in a way. But highly recommended. I definitely recommend watching. I don't want to say too much about it. You should watch yeah, it. I'll, I'll think about checking it out. If I can check it down. Lastly, I watched a couple of documentaries made by Kin Loganotto and uh, Jano Williams. I apologize if I'm pronouncing both of your names incorrectly. If you're listening. <laughs> yeah. The first of which is uh, Shinjuku Guys, which is a BBC documentary from the mid-90s about... Uh, not to correct you, but it does say on Letterboxd, Shinjuku Boys. Shinjuku Boys, yes. I wrote down Shinjuku Guys in my guide somehow. You're a dumb piece of shit. <laughs> it is Shinjuku Boys, thank you. And it's about three transgender men working at an onabi club in Tokyo. Mm. And onabi, the term, denotes um, people who were born female presenting as male. Okay. And the, the, in the context of the clubs, they would do that for a female clientele. Right. Many of the workers were actually transgender men, but I don't think all of them were necessarily. Some of them were more, it's more like female impersonation or male yeah. impersonation. But, yeah. but certainly the folks of the documentary are um, is, people who identify as, as men. men. Or right. non-binary in the case of one of them. Right. And it's quite a short documentary. It's under. It's just about an hour. Hmm. Um, How did you watch but, it? Uh, um, I, on DVD. My brother had a copy of it. Yeah. And it's interesting for sure. I, it's highly recommended. They're very frank uh, about. Well, they're very frank in just talking about themselves and their sex lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, how they identify and, and all that, all those sort of issues. It feels quite ahead of its time, um, mm-hmm. to be honest. But and it packs so much into an hour, and I found it very moving, and very mm-hmm. powerful, and absolutely worth seeking out if you can. Yeah, if I, that sounds intriguing. And uh, finally, I watched uh, their other film, which they made uh, in the year two thousand, Gayer Girls, uh, which is about. Um, a professional female wrestling school and the uh, very strenuous and violent training regime that goes into preparing. Um, there's a lot of uh, kind of unsettling training scenes where they, mm. the, the, the sort of, uh, the woman who is controlling the, or is sort of the head of the, the school, uh, at least from a training perspective, practices the, the sort of tough love philosophy to try and get them ready for the, the professional arena. And it's like uh, a fox catcher. Mm, and she talks about the fact that... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I just said, mm. There's just something so dismissive about that that I thought was really funny. It's like, mm, yeah. We'll get to fox you're, catcher. You, you're a fucking fox catcher. Come on. We'll get to fox catcher. Give me a moment. Um, And she talks about the fact that she passes on the techniques that she learned from her abusive father. Oh my gosh. Which is kind of concerning. Yeah. And you see people like uh, leave and triumph and whatever. I prefer Shinjuku Boys. I thought that was a better documentary, but Gay Girls is is definitely really interesting as well. Mm. Especially if you have some interest in wrestling, which I don't. I don't either. 
So I used to listen to a wrestling podcast back when my brain was broken. Good for you. Well then, my friend, that is all my bonus features. Drag on forever, I'll be Go. So Hugh, I, I assume that you you think that you know <clears throat> what I'm going to talk about on this specific segment of Jagon Forever. I have an idea. What do you think I'm going to talk about? So Hugh, I could torment you with more talk about my favorite TV show of all time, Neon Genesis Evangelion, or my second favorite TV show of all time, uh, on cinema at the cinema. Mm-hmm. But instead, I'll, I'll spare you. I'm going to talk about a new video game I've been playing recently. It's called Control. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you laughing? Okay, yeah, Control, got it. Uh, It's by Remedy Software, who's best known for... uh, I assume the game that you know them for is Max Payne. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you played this or heard of that? I've heard of it. I I don't play very much, so... Uh, it It came out in the early 2000s, so I feel like that was... Like around when you were playing. You know, I think I've watched other people play Max Payne. Um, give you that that's much. sort of a, a kind of seminal, like um, uh, Mark Wahlberg film. Noir, yeah, Mark Wahlberg film. Noir video game introduced the brought the concept of like bullet time into video gaming. Indeed. Um, but and it has never cares. left since. Uh, yep. Uh, but who cares? Remedy's kind of interesting because they're Finnish. Not a lot of Finnish game developers. Um, but I invested them for this game that came out in the Xbox 360 called Alan Wake. Destroyed the sort of this weird metaphysical uh, Stephen Kingish story that I, I really, really loved when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Has this really compelling mechanic where uh, it's sort of uh, you think it's going to be sort of a standard like third person shooter game, um, but the mechanic that you use to fight the enemies you have to shine a flashlight on them before you can damage them. Mm. Conventional means. And at least it's a really tense gameplay, and has this great sort of atmosphere. So it's basically Luigi's Mansion. No, because Luigi's Mansion, uh, the end result of you knocking their health down is sucking them into a vacuum. Uh, That's basically an academic difference. So, <laughs> it is somewhat similar to Luigi's Mansion. I'll grant you that. Yes. Have you played Luigi's Mansion? Nope. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, so... I really love this game. Uh, Which game? Control or Alan Wake? Alan, Alan Wake. Uh, and then um, Remedy, the next game that they made uh, after this was a game called Quantum Break. It's this weird sort of experimental half game, half TV show, which I didn't see. Didn't see Starring Australia's own? Um, Dominic Monaghan? Yep. Who was also in? Oh, wait. Oh, no, no, no. Australian. No, no, sorry. I was thinking of a different project. <laughs> you dumb piece of shit. I thought I was good. I thought I was getting ahead of you. I was like, I'm all over this. No, what were you thinking of? Um, no, you know that one that it was, it was the same thing where it was a video game and a TV show at the same time. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like an MMO. What's it called? It's like a sci-fi show. It was a sci-fi show, yeah. Oh, my God. I cannot remember the name of it. It doesn't matter. Um... No, so, I've seen footage of I've seen footage of the quantum break <laughs> thing with Sean Ashmore from Animorphs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, Iceman. Um, and Iceman. Anyway, yeah. 
So, uh, okay. but that game came, only came up for the Xbox One, which I do not own. Um, and I was kind of interested in playing it, but also the TV uh, aspect sounded uninteresting. Um, but Indeed. they recently released uh, a month ago a game called Control, um, which I've only played an hour or two of, so I don't really have that much to say about which is why I brought it to the history of Remedy. Um, well, you're in there sort of left. It has a similar sort of vibe to Alan Wake. God, what was the name of that fucking game? <laughs> <laughs> you got You've got fifty seconds left. Uh, uh, Defiance. That's what it's called. Defiance. Yeah. Anyway, so, so um, Control is sort of it, it has this sort of X Files flair where uh, you play as this woman who's investigating this like bizarre branch of the U.S. government that may or may not exist. You go to this sort of biz- this um, curious building in the middle of. Of New York, and it's been besought by paranormal events, and you sort of uncover this conspiracy to that uh, has been employed to cover up uh, uh, these paranormal happenings across America. And yeah, it's pretty. It's got a pretty good atmosphere, and uh, I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, so that's what I choose to spend my Chiron Forever segment talking about is the game Control. How many more seconds do I have left? Done! Project A plus that was Project A plus Project A plus that was Project A plus Project A plus featuring the both of us Project A plus now it's time to say Thanks very much Please stay in touch Otherwise we might lose the will to fight Then we'll close down our website We're gonna go Make another show Now we have to say goodbye Hope you get that dream job Maybe meet a handsome guy We pray to God that you'll find happiness Before you die Oh.